Well, folks, here we are. You know, when I first embarked on this journey to chronologically recap the Attitude Era, I always knew that Over the Edge would be lurking at some point, but it always seemed so far off. And yet, after 74 episodes, almost 700,000 words, and more than 1,100 pages in Microsoft Word, the time has finally come. Now, if you listened to the previous episode of this podcast, you'll remember that I mentioned that I would be tackling this episode solo because, well, frankly, no one that I asked really wanted to do it with me, and who could blame them? However, with that being said, to make sure I break things up a bit, I'll be bringing in more audio clips than usual, reading some book passages, and just generally trying not to make this whole thing a depressing ordeal. The last thing I want is to bum you out for several hours, but I do want to make sure that I cover Sunday Night Heat, Over the Edge, and the following night's episode of Raw with the usual in-depth analysis I bring to the other episodes of the podcast. And that is why, when I review all three of those shows here, I will be watching the original feeds, not the ones which are presented on the WWE Network. It should go without saying that when you watch Over the Edge on the WWE Network, it is heavily edited for obvious reasons. Heat and Raw are actually pretty much intact in their original forms, but not so much for Over the Edge. And just to reiterate the point I made on the previous episode of this podcast, I'm not watching the original feeds here to try and be shocking or edgy or blah blah blah. I'm watching the originals because, frankly, the WWE slash WWF was responsible for some pretty messed up shit here, and I don't think it's fair to just accept their whitewashed version on the network. Everyone who attended or watched or wrestled was affected forever that night, and that's not something the WWE should just be able to sweep under the rug because, in my humble opinion, it's some pretty shameful shit. So yes, I'll be watching the original feeds and bringing in some audio clips from those shows. And some of it's probably going to be pretty hard to listen to, so let's just say that you have been warned in advance. And with that being said, <sighs> let's get into this episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast, and we're going to start with Sunday Night Heat, which aired right before the start of Over the Edge. So it is Sunday, May 23rd, 1999, and we are live from Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, in front of a crowd of 16,472 fans. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include four episodes of Raw, five episodes of SmackDown, and one other pay-per-view, Backlash 2002, the show where the recently returned Hulk Hogan defeated Triple H to win the undisputed title. And by the way, though, when I saw that they actually did more shows at Kemper Arena after Over the Edge, I was legitimately shocked. I figured it'd be all over after this one, but no, they kept going there all the way up until 2008. Pretty surprising. So we kick off Sunday Night Heat with a recap of the rivalry between Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker, followed by the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. And yes, even though this is a bit of a somber occasion, I'm going to go ahead and list some of the noteworthy signs in the crowd anyway, because I think we all may need a laugh by the time this show is over, so here's a quick list. Go Jesus! Sable, my mom can kick your butt! Sean Stasiak had PMS last night! Eat the kale! So that fan was clearly way ahead of the times when it came to the current kale trend. One of those signs with the abbreviation USA on it, but in this case it stood for... Undertaker sucks ass. Mr. Nads with an arrow pointing down. The top 10 reasons to watch the WWF? Sable, Terry, Tori, Deborah, Ryan. Stone Cold, call me 1-800-COLLECT, presumably a shout out to that commercial that Austin does with D'Lo Brown. 
X-Pac, I want to kiss you. And geez, lady, how about getting some higher standards there? Good Lord. The original Rudy Pooh with a picture of Winnie the Pooh on the sign. And on a related note, Preparation HHH for your Rudy Pooh candy ass. Missouri, the show me your puppies state. And a sign that said, I'm leaving after heat, which was presumably a joke, but also in this instance would not have been a bad idea. We then officially begin the show with corporate ministry members Shane McMahon, the Acolytes, the Big Boss Man, Midian, and Viscera all heading to the ring. Shane, by the way, is wearing a referee shirt since he will be one of the two special guest referees for tonight's main event with his father, Vince McMahon, being the other one. And so let's take a listen to what Shane has to say. And there's that familiar chant for Shane McMahon. What's up, Kansas City? You know, I stand before you, all of you here tonight in unfamiliar territory. You see, I've been contemplating all week, am I up for tonight's challenge? Can I make the grade? I mean, you can't fathom the responsibility that I have of being one of two special guest referees for tonight's over-the-edge, pay-per-view spectacular main event. In which the current World Wrestling Federation champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin... will defend his title against the phenom himself, The Undertaker. And one thing, Austin, in case you forgot, if you put one little itty-bitty finger on me, I will strip you of the World Wrestling Federation title and award it to The Undertaker. Now, I've taken my job very seriously, and I've been working out very hard. I've been training in the ring. Trying to alleviate my chronic shoulder injury. You know the one that impales my shoulder as I sometimes count one, two, and all of a sudden that, oh, right there, that pain keeps my arm from coming down on the three count. Please. So tonight, to warm my shoulder up, call it a special warm-up match for myself as a special guest referee, as well as the corporate ministry's Midian will be in one corner. And tonight, right here on Heat Midian, your opponent, with myself being the special guest referee, will be none other than Stone Cold Steve Austin. What? Oh, you got to be kidding me. As if the odds aren't stacked enough against the Rattlesnake. You see, Stone Cold Steve Austin, when you arrive here in this building, you have one hell of a night ahead of you. And one thing I promise you, Austin, you will tonight be pushed over the edge. So there you have it. Shane reminds us that, just like last month when he was the special guest referee at Backlash, he has the power to disqualify Stone Cold Steve Austin and strip him of the WWF title if the rattlesnake lays a finger on Shane. And then, to further stack the deck against Stone Cold tonight, Shane is booking him to face Midian tonight on Heat, with Shane acting as the special guest referee for that match as well. 
And I've got to say, even with Shane being the ref, if I'm stone cold, I'm probably not sweating that one too much. I mean, Jesus Christ, I think Midian has won maybe one match all year. I think Austin can handle the formidable threat that he poses. Call me crazy. And once that promo concludes, we then cut backstage where we see a limousine pulling up to the arena, and when the door opens, we see Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe. In case you need a reminder, The Undertaker brutally attacked Vince in the locker room this past Monday on Raw, resulting in the chairman having to be put onto a stretcher and taken to a hospital. But tonight, he seems to be walking around just fine, so it appears that his injuries have healed significantly. And then, after a commercial, when Heat returns, we get footage from During the Break, where, of all people, Howard Finkel walks up to Vince and tells him that Shane has booked Stone Cold vs. Midian, to which Vince says that Shane won't get away with that. Yes, truly, this evil plan must be stopped. So we then go back into the arena for our first match of the evening, Meat, accompanied by Terry Runnels, Jacqueline, and Ryan Shamrock, versus One Half of Too Much, Too Sexy Brian Christopher, who is accompanied by Scott, Too Hot Taylor. Yes, that's right. Meet versus Brian Christopher, two sons of wrestling legends. Whose father is more ashamed? You be the judge. And I will note for the record that Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor are dancing like idiots when they make their way to the ring, to which I say, good luck getting over with that. Never gonna happen. And as an added, uh, treat, Terry Runnels actually joins the commentary team during this match to point out the subtlety of the PMS gimmick by saying, and I quote, Don't forget... We hate men. So much nuance to these characters, I have to say. Quick question, though. Remember a few months ago when Val Venus was banging Ryan Shamrock and her brother Ken Shamrock was basically beating Val's ass for it every week? Well, now Ryan is in PMS and Meat's entire gimmick is, I'm having sex with these three women. So shouldn't Ken Shamrock be running down to the ring and kicking Meat's ass, too? I mean, my God, if he was having sex with my sister nonstop, I'd be so protective of her that I probably wouldn't be able to stop beating the meat. Did I go a long way for that joke? Yes. But was it necessary? Eh, no, probably not. And mercifully, this match barely gets any time at all, as Jacqueline jumps up on the ring apron in pretty short order to distract Brian Christopher. From there, Meat sneaks up on him and hits him with a reverse DDT, which Michael Cole refers to as, I shit you not... The meat grinder, and that's enough to pick up the one, the two, and the three. Your winner on heat is meat. And once the pinfall is registered, Terry leaves the commentary table to join meat, but not before she says to Michael Cole, quote, And by the way, you make me sick, too. Join the club there, Terry. Join the club. But once meat and PMS head backstage, the Hardy Boys and Michael P.S. Hayes run down to the ring and start beating the crap out of too much. Remember that the Hardys and Hayes had a show-stealing match against The Brood on this past Monday's episode of Raw, so hopefully we'll be seeing more of them in the coming weeks. Well, hopefully more of the Hardys anyway. Michael Hayes can just kind of fuck right off. And after commercial break, we go back into the arena where Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe are heading to the ring. So Vince grabs a mic and proceeds to call out Shane for booking Stone Cold vs. Midian, and sure enough, Shane does indeed show up at the top of the ramp, and then things take a rather interesting turn, so let's take a listen. You heard Vince kind of scoffing at Shane's proclamation that Stone Cold was going to have to have a warm-up match against Midian. Let's get right to this, Vince. You still got a little bit of juice left. What's on your mind? Just because... 
you control 50% of the stock, you and your sister. Uh, that doesn't give you the right to be a big shot. That doesn't give you the right to throw your weight around. Doesn't give you the right. Doesn't give you the right to screw with people's careers and screw with people's lives, Shane. So therefore, there will be no Midian Stone Cold match on Heat tonight. Vince putting the brakes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't call the shots. I do, you remember? I call the shots here. And Stone Cold Steve Austin will compete in this very ring right there against Midian tonight on Heat. Or that is a breach of contract. I booked the match. You know what the contract says. And if Austin fails to appear here in this very ring against Midian, then I will strip Austin of the WWF Championship right now and award it to The Undertaker. And Austin is screwed one way or the other. He has no choice in the matter right now. You're way over the edge. Oh, no, no, I haven't even begun to go over the edge. You, you know what? I got something over the edge for you. The only way Stone Cold Steve Austin will not appear in that very ring against Midian tonight on Heat is if uh, there is one replacement. And hmm. What do you have in Who, mind, Shane? What do I have in mind? Let's see. The guys that has balls bigger than his brains. Uh-oh. That's right. I'm talking about you, Dad. What? If you got the grapefruits, I will accept you as a replacement for Stone Cold Steve Austin to face Midian right here tonight on Heat, which, by the way, I will be the special guest referee. Shane's crazy. Patterson and Briscoe are telling Vince not to How do it. How about it? He can't do it. That's what you really want? That's what I want. You got it. Oh, You're no. Vince McMahon, Midian tonight. That, that's suicide, Kevin. That's complete suicide. That smirk on Shane's face. I think he's played the final trump card as we head to Over the Edge. So first of all, does this officially count as the biggest push Midian has ever received? Because I think it does. First, he was booked to fight Stone Cold. Now he's booked to fight Vince. I mean, clearly, he is only deserving of being in the ring with the biggest names in the industry. Although, I have to laugh at the fact that Michael Cole and Kevin Kelly are playing this up as though Vince is signing his own death warrant by agreeing to face Midian. And Cole even says, quote, that's complete suicide. So, number one, I repeat, it's Midian. But number two, let's just flash back to one month ago on the April 19th episode of Raw. Remember that segment where Vince and Stephanie were doing the interview in the studio and Midian showed up? Do you also happen to remember how that segment turned out? Because I sure do. Vince McMahon beat Midian's ass, jumped into his car, put it into reverse, and almost murdered him. So yeah, I guess I'm saying that I think Vince has a pretty good shot tonight. That's all I'm saying. But I suppose we'll find out before heat is over. And so, after another commercial break, we get the very first moment which is edited out on the WWE Network. Michael Cole informs us that if you send in your cable bill, you will receive a pewter pendant in the shape of the Undertaker's symbol. Or, actually, if you're Cole, you mistakenly call it a pewter pennant, which would be rather unique because I don't think I've ever seen a flag made of metal. And then, after a video montage recapping the feud between The Rock and Triple H, we go back into the arena where The Rock is indeed heading to the ring. 
In case you need a quick reminder, last Monday on Raw, Triple H helped The Undertaker defeat The Rock in a casket match, and then after the match was over, Triple H pulled out a sledgehammer for the very first time and bashed the shit out of the casket while Rock was still inside. And yes, it looked fucking awesome. Rock, by the way, is still wearing a cast on his left arm from being thrown off the stage a few weeks ago, and we're told that his arm is broken, plus he needed 16 stitches from that sledgehammer attack. Also, I'm not sure how he's alive after being bashed about 10 times with a sledgehammer, but hey, that's a whole other story. So Rock grabs a mic, and let's take a listen to what he has to say, and by the way, at the beginning of his promo, pay close attention to what he says, because it sounds a bit foreshadowy. Triple H, The Rock says, has there been a point in your miserable life where it has flashed before your very eyes? Has there been a point, Triple H, where your future is uncertain? Has there been a point where you wondered whether or not tomorrow will ever come? Well, Triple H, now is that moment because you are going eye to eye with a Brahma bull that is going to rip your heart out. And with all the history that you have with The Rock, with the nights that The Great One has made your monkey ass famous, somewhere along the way, you simply got lost. But tonight, Triple H, the people's champ, is going to help you find your way. The Rock is going to help you find your way right into the SmackDown Hotel. Not only will you get checked into the SmackDown Hotel, but you get a complimentary dinner at the Candy Ass Cafe. And the special of the night is going to be a big fat rock burger with some extra rock sauce on the side. But don't worry, Triple H. The Rock isn't going to take the rock burger and shove it down your throat. The Rock is going to take the rock burger and stick it straight up your candy ass. The Rock is all business tonight. Uh, we may not have to wait for over the edge. Whatever. All right. You can go out there and you can cry. Why don't you run to the pharmacy, get yourself some Vagisil and spread it on yourself so you can get rid of that little problem you get before ring time. You know, Rock, as far as I know, that cast, it's supposed to be off your arm tonight. And I thought I got rid of it last week, Rock. You remember last week, don't you? You, me, the casket, a little sledgehammer action. Well, Rock, the only problem with that was you're still breathing. Rock, you've got a little while before you have to have that off your arm. And I guarantee you this, if you don't take it off, I'm going to lose it for you. Tonight in Over the Edge, Rock Triple H. Well, Triple H, the Rock says that the only thing that's going to get lost is the Rock's boot. Straight up, your Rudy Pooh. If you smell 
is cooking. It is going to be a war and over the edge. Less than 30 minutes away to Rock. Triple H. While it will be a war, Michael Cole, the Rock is going to have to go into that battle with a broken arm, unprotected, no cast allowed by orders of Shane McMahon. Triple H definitely with the advantage as we get set for over the edge. So first of all, I couldn't help but notice that you could hear Rock audibly gasping in between the pauses in his sentences several times, which I don't think I've ever heard from him before. I'm assuming someone backstage noticed that too and told him to take things a little slower in the future, and let's just say that probably works out pretty well for him. Also, there has never been anyone better in the history of the business at coming up with catchphrases, but I don't think it's an accident that the Candy Ass Cafe and a rock burger with extra rock sauce never quite caught on. Let's all agree to just never speak of those ones again. But as you heard there, Triple H interrupts on the Titantron, and after randomly dropping a Vagisil reference, he informs us that Rock must remove the cast on his arm before tonight's match. So there you have it, a little more back and forth between two all-time greats to get the fans a bit more interested before the show. Have you called your local cable company to order yet? Because if not, you probably should. And plus, hey, you get that sweet pewter pendant as well. You gotta do it. And after a commercial break, Lucas from WWF.com, who somehow still has a job, is backstage with Michael P.S. Hayes and the Hardy Boys. Hayes says that people had been saying that he couldn't get the job done anymore, but if they had any doubts, maybe they should ask too much or the brood about that. And Matt Hardy then grabs the mic and says that there will be two more victims after the next match. Jeff Hardy, however, gets no mic time, which actually is probably the right call. And that provides a fitting segue because we then go back into the arena for our next match, the Hardy Boys, accompanied by Michael P.S. Hayes, versus Goldust and the Blue Meanie. And not to state the obvious here, but that promo they just cut was all about how everyone was going to see how Michael Hayes can still get the job done, and he's not even in this match. Not that I'm complaining. And I have to say, the Hardys have really won over the fans in record time over the past few shows. Early on in this match, they bust out poetry in motion on Goldust, and it gets a loud, oh, from the crowd. And then later on, Jeff also hits a standing moonsault, which I didn't even realize was in his arsenal. Remember, though, the Hardy boys are heels right now, which is kind of an interesting decision since their moveset is so goddamn entertaining. But on a personal note, I do remember being really captivated by the Hardys in these early matches too, because their offense was just so unconventional and they would bust out these moves I'd never seen before. It was really something. I always wanted to see what they had in store next. And on that note, the finish of the match came when the Blue Meanie got the hot tag and hit Matt Hardy with a moonsault, but Jeff broke up the pinfall. And to take things up a notch even further, Jeff then got a running start dove over the top rope, and hit a somersault senton onto Goldust on the floor. I repeat, the Hardys are friggin' nuts. Well, mostly Jeff. And then, back in the ring, Matt was able to sneak up on the meanie and hit him with the still-unnamed twist of fate, and that was good enough to secure the one, the two, and the three. Your winners of the match, the Hardy Boys. But then, as soon as the match ends, the lights go out and the Brood's music plays. And when the lights come back on, yes, the Hardys and Michael Hayes have been given a bloodbath. Michael Hayes, by the way, was already wearing a red shirt, so I feel like it would have made more sense if the dumbass had worn a different color, so way to go there, Doc. But yes, it appears that this rivalry between the Hardys and the Brood is not over, to which I say, thank goodness. And then it's time for another segment that gets edited out on the WWE Network, 
a Super Soaker commercial with Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and the Mean Street Posse. Yes, that's right. The Stooges tell Rodney and Pete Gass to leave the property, but Rodney says, and I quote, You know what Shane O'Mac says, every single day, someone's got to take a spray. Hashtag phrasing. And so, because Rodney and Pete Gass have super soakers, and the Stooges have little squirt guns, the posse easily manages to scare off Patterson and Briscoe. I repeat, in this super soaker ad, the Mean Street Posse wins. Super Soaker, the official water cannon of stuck-up rich punks. From there, we then go to the Union's locker room, where Lucas from WWF.com is set to interview them. However, before Mankind can divulge their strategy, we cut to another camera outside the locker room, where the corporate ministry is using a forklift to trap them inside. Why? Presumably so none of them can provide backup for Vince McMahon in his upcoming match with Midian. Wise strategy. And after commercial break, we go back into the arena where it is indeed time for that match. Vince McMahon, accompanied by Super Soaker Showdown losers Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe, versus Midian, who is accompanied by the Acolytes, Viscera, and the Big Boss Man, with Shane McMahon acting as the special guest referee. And as you might expect, this match doesn't last very long, so let's take a listen to what happens next. And here we go now. Vince McMahon wasting little time, and he takes down Midian. Perhaps the future of the WWF is riding uh, on this matchup. And look at Shane pulling his hair. Oh, Vince just clocked his son Shane, and he took out Midian. Just six days ago, Vince was hospitalized with a wrenched neck, attacked by the corporate ministry, orchestrated by his own son. Look at him trying to just tear him off of Midian. And now Shane on the back of his father, again leading an attack oh, on his own dad. Patterson and Briscoe coming in, and the corporate ministry there to head Vince's only ally. Off. And look at this, Dad. Uh, look at this. Midian just hammering away along with Shane, kicking his father when he's down. Is this what Stone Cold Steve Austin has to look forward to? With Shane as the referee later on tonight and over the edge against The Undertaker. And listen to Shane bad-mouthing his own father. Vince just riling in pain in the corner. If the entire corporate ministry just hammering away now on Vince. We are watching. Oh, wait a minute. Right out. Oh, oh. Side. 
Anderson and Briscoe over to his head. But the bottom line here, folks, is Shane McMahon may be the lone referee for Austin and The Undertaker. Shane McMahon has almost ensured that The Undertaker will leave over the edge tonight as WWF champion, changing the face of the WWF as we know it. And there's the rattlesnake. Stone Cold Steve Austin has no idea. Vince McMahon just sacrificed him. Can the rattlesnake overcome this conspiracy next on pay-per-view? So Vince started off the match pretty well, taking down Midian and punching him in the face. But of course, Shane refuses to act as an impartial referee, instead joining Midian in beating up his father. And in short order, the rest of the corporate ministry takes out Patterson and Briscoe, leaving Vince at their mercy. So Midian then brings Vince outside the ring and positions the chairman's foot on the ring steps. And Midian then smashes the chair into Vince's leg, not once, but twice. And with Vince writhing on the ground in pain, Michael Cole speculates that he may not be able to act as the second special guest referee for tonight's main event between Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker. And speaking of Stone Cold, as you heard there, heat went off the air with Austin walking in the door, totally unaware that Vince had just injured his leg. Will Stone Cold be able to retain his title tonight despite seemingly insurmountable odds? I suppose you'll just have to call your local cable company to find out. By the way, in terms of Vince McMahon's quote-unquote injury, you may want to remember that little tidbit because, well, let's just say that it comes into play a little bit later on in a very unexpected way and uh, not in a way that's planned, let's just say that. So that was Sunday Night Heat. In case you're curious, Heat did a very respectable 4.4 rating on this night, which is a full point higher than last Monday's episode of Nitro. So yeah, the WWF is really firing on all cylinders right now. Thank you very much. However, on an interesting note, there is only one more occasion where Heat will score higher than a 4.4 rating, and it's on the August 8th episode where they score a 4.7. As 1999 trends onward, Heat starts to feature the top guys a lot less often, mainly as a function of SmackDown becoming the new number two show when it debuts in August, so those Heat ratings end up going down pretty substantially by the end of the year. But for now, they're doing quite well, and these shows before the pay-per-views are certainly a great way to do that one final hard sell to get people to plunk down 30 bucks. I know it worked for me, because I certainly ordered Over the Edge back in 1999, and, uh, well, yeah. But on that note, I suppose we might as well just do it. Let's get into Over the Edge 1999. And let's hypothetically say that you queue up this show on the WWE Network, if you do, what you'll see is an in-memoriam graphic, but we'll get into that quite a bit more very soon. But then, it kicks into our opening video package, narrated by The Undertaker, so take a listen. Once, evil was simply perceived as that which man did not understand. Now, however, he understands it all too well. Evil is the part of man he attempts to shun. He seeks to deny. Everything man is determined to destroy can be found within his own heart. Tonight, the reckoning is upon us. Tonight, darkness will seize the land, destroy all you hold dear, and make playthings of your heroes. Steve Austin, behold Miles and Powers. I come to you tonight laden with sin, seething with evil. Tonight I will strip you of that which you hold dear, 
Well, that certainly sets a fitting tone for the night then, doesn't it? Also, did you catch when The Undertaker said, everything man is determined to destroy can be found within his own heart? His own heart? Own heart? Creepy coincidence, or is that just me reading into something too much? I'll just, I'll let you be the judge there. So after that, we go into the arena, and even though we got Pyro on heat, we get it here as well, followed by another obligatory scanning of the crowd. And needless to say, these Kansas City fans are very excited for the coming show. So after quickly checking in with our commentators for Over the Edge, Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler, we go right into our first match of the evening, and it is for the WWF Tag Team Titles, Champions X-Pac and Kane versus Challengers D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry, who are accompanied by Ivory. And it is at this point that I'm going to read the first excerpt from a book, which is actually quite helpful in laying out the details of what happens tonight, and that would be Broken Hearts by Martha Hart, who is, of course, the wife of Owen Hart. Now, let me just say in advance here, Martha Hart is very critical of the WWF slash WWE, and she was never much of a fan of Owen's chosen profession. In fact, on the night of Over the Edge, she didn't even realize there was a pay-per-view. She would just kind of check in with Owen after the shows. However, when it comes to her book, she actually did do exhaustive research on all the events at Over the Edge, so it's a very good source if you want to know the minute-by-minute details. So with that in mind, I'm picking up a passage from her book here shortly after our opening tag team title match begins. Now tonight, Owen Hart, as the Blue Blazer, is scheduled to lower himself down from the rafters before his match, similar to a stunt he's done before, so Martha writes about the preparations Owen is taking at this point in the Over the Edge broadcast. Quote, Amidst a shower of pyrotechnics, wrestlers Kane and X-Pac entered the ring to defend their tag team championship belts against Sexual Chocolate and D'Lo Brown for the first match of the pay-per-view. Noticeably quiet as he made final preparations, Owen paced back and forth, prompting longtime colleague Dustin Runnels, a.k.a. Goldust, to ask if he was nervous. Owen admitted he was, before Runnels assured him, it'll be alright. Owen placed his cape and mask into a duffel bag. To help conceal his identity for the walk through the crowd to the rafters, he put on prison-like coveralls and wore a baseball cap pulled down over his face. Leaving his dressing room with the bag slung over his shoulder, Owen bumped into former wrestler Harley Race. Told by Owen he was very uncomfortable with the upcoming stunt, Race tried to put him at ease by joking, Be careful that rope doesn't break. Owen proceeded down the hall to an elevator that took him from the basement of the arena to the main concourse. Walking briskly past hundreds of wrestling fans, he stared towards the ground of the gray brick concourse, hoping to remain anonymous as he headed for section 221. He hurried up several flights of stairs to the last row of nosebleeds in the building, then climbed a rickety wooden ladder to the catwalk. The catwalk obviously wasn't designed for heavy traffic. Still, he continued his path toward the center of the arena's roof. Careful not to look down at the sea of blue seats and patrons below, whose movement had a dizzying effect on Owen when he had peeked down in his previous few stunts, he made a left turn back towards the center of the arena. Now at the center point of the arena's catwalk system, he turned towards the massive scoreboard that hung well below him. He climbed under an electrical pipe, up a slight incline, and over a structure beam. 
The final stretch was particularly tough to negotiate due to the more than 100 feet of black nylon repelling rope placed all along the graded floor. It was the same rope Owen would soon attach himself to. It was there, just south of the center of the arena, that he was greeted by Bobby Talbert at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, half an hour before the stunt was to occur. End quote. And of course, I'll refer back to that book in just a little bit, but for now, while our first match is going on below, you have an idea of what's going on above. More on that very soon, but for now, let's get into the first match of the evening, X-Pac and Kane defending their tag team titles against D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry. So Mark Henry, by the way, is wearing a t-shirt, black slacks, and business shoes during this match, and I can't imagine it'd be comfortable to wrestle in that outfit, but hey, good for him, I suppose. And early on in the match, Jim Ross points out that Mark Henry is so athletic that he's able to dunk a basketball, which I should note, JR is still mentioning on his podcast in the present day. I think we get it, Jim. To the naked eye, he looks like a fat guy, but he's actually athletic. Point taken. Kind of like how Brian Pillman looked small, but he was a second-team All-American nose tackle at Miami of Ohio. Yes, I get it. Please find some new anecdotes. But anyway, as is the custom for these X-Pac and Kane matches, X-Pac spent the majority of the match getting worked over by the heels until he finally managed to make the hot tag to Kane. However, Mark Henry and D'Lo managed to bail out to the floor, where they started working over X-Pac outside the ring. At which point, Kane went to the top rope and leaped down onto D'Lo and Sexual Chocolate on the arena floor. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that he leaped. You really do need to see the height that Kane gets on this jump. It's ridiculously impressive for a guy his size. Just unreal. And then back in the ring, Kane grabbed Sexual Chocolate by the throat. He lifted him up, and yes, he managed to drill him with a choke slam. Referee Tim White made the count, and yes, that was good enough for the victory. Your winners of the match, and still WWF Tag Team Champions, X-Pac and Kane. Very solid opener here, which will unfortunately be forgotten by a lot of people because of, uh, well, you know. And so, once the match concludes, we cut backstage where Michael Cole provides us with an update on the condition of Vince McMahon. Apparently, Shane's master plan may have succeeded because Vince has an injured ankle, and there's a strong possibility that he may not be able to act as the special guest referee later on tonight. To which I say to Vince, Hey man, tough it out. The show must go on. And then we cut elsewhere backstage where Kevin Kelly is with Hardcore Holly. And, well, Holly then proceeds to show us the reason why he shouldn't be getting any mic time. Thanks, Michael Cole. Hardcore Holly, you really raised the ire of Al Snow when you destroyed his friend Pierre. Kevin, when I was a child, I had an imaginary friend, and his name was Little Joe. We did everything together. We were playing in the living room one day, and a lamp got broke. I told my father, Little Joe broke that lamp. He didn't buy it for one second. So I was the one that got punished. I was the one that was disciplined. And tonight, Al Snow, you're the one that's going to be punished and disciplined. You see, Al, Pierre and Head, they're imaginary. They're not real. But what reality is, is two things. Number one, I will get my title back tonight. And number two, I will take an implementary destruction and give these people an opportunity to see what's inside that sick mind of yours because I'm going to peel your head wide open. What do you say there? Implement, 
What? I gotta get my thesaurus out. I didn't get that one. You know it's not a good sign when Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler immediately crap on your promo right after you finish. So yes, Holly said, quote, I will take an implementary destruction, and what I think he was going for was to say that he will take an instrument of destruction, but who knows. Perhaps his childhood friend Little Joe was distracting him during that promo. Regardless, that does indeed lead into our next match, and it is for the WWF Hardcore Championship, Champion Al Snow, accompanied by Head and Pierre, versus challenger Hardcore Holly. Al Snow, by the way, is still wearing a black armband with the name Pierre on it in memory of his friend's death. I repeat, he's wearing a black armband. Just, just remember that for tomorrow night's episode of Raw. File that info away. And on a related note, let's go back to Martha Hart's book, Broken Hearts, for a description of what Owen was doing at this point. Quote, Jim Vincent assisted preparations by shining a flashlight on Owen while Bobby Talbert helped him put on his repelling harness. Featuring three straps across the front and plenty of reinforcement to prevent tearing of any sort, the black harness fit much like a sleeveless life jacket. It also had straps that wrapped around his legs to further stabilize him while being lowered. With Owen securely fastened, Talbert then grabbed the end of the rope and attached the snap shackle device to the metal ring on the back of the harness. He pulled on the snap shackle device several times, once almost lifting Owen off his feet to ensure that it was properly secured. Owen then put on his silly-looking blue, silver, and red mask. Featuring holes cut out for his eyes, nose, and mouth, the mask had laces in the back used to secure it in place. With his movements somewhat limited in the confined space, Owen needed help from Talbert to put on his bright blue and red sequined cape. The sides of the cape, lined with white feathers, were attached to Owen's hands by way of elastic bands he continually readjusted throughout final preparations. The release cord, designed to quickly separate Owen from the rope upon ring entry, was then brought to the front of Owen's harness and secured on the upper right side of his chest using black gaff tape, similar to electrical tape. As designed, one quick tug of the cord would trigger the snap shackle and allow Owen free range in the ring. Now, for a second here, I'm just going to cut back in before reading this next part. So Owen Hart, at the time of Over the Edge, weighed in at about 230 pounds, okay? So realistically, if they're doing this stunt where Owen has to quickly detach from a snap shackle, he should need to exert a lot of force in order to release himself, right? I mean, you don't want him to be able to detach with very little pressure because that could be disastrous, right? So with that in mind, I'm going to pick up the next passage here. Quote, It only took six pounds of pressure to rid himself of the rope, and Talbert explained that Owen should pull it in a deliberate upward fashion, cueing Talbert to pull the rope back up. Now, just cutting in here again, in case you want a frame of reference there, six pounds of pressure is roughly the strength it takes to pull the trigger of a gun, or if you want to put a finer point on it, with Owen suspended in the air by the cord, he could have generated six pounds of pressure by simply taking a deep breath. So needless to say, the riggers who approved this stunt were not setting him up for success, to say the least. And then, one final excerpt here before we move on. Quote, Minutes from his cue, Owen apparently moved his arms out and away from his body several times to reposition his cape in an effort to try to conceal his harness. The awkward cape was heavy and had a tendency to choke him if not positioned properly. End quote. So with the hardcore match going on below, Owen is on the catwalk getting fastened into his harness, and, well, needless to say, we'll pick that up again in just a moment, 
But for now, let's get into Al Snow versus Hardcore Holly for the WWF Hardcore Championship. And this may be the only time that someone would call Al Snow versus Bob Holly a welcome diversion, but so be it. So early on in the match, Holly grabbed a fire extinguisher and brought it into the ring, but it appeared that he didn't actually know how to use it, so Snow smacked him in the head with a cookie sheet, and then Al used the extinguisher on Holly instead. I honestly couldn't tell if that was how the spot was supposed to play out, or if Holly just didn't know how to operate the damn thing, so I'll just assume that Hardcore Holly fucked up. Still though, spraying a fire extinguisher in someone's face never fails to get a reaction. That's just wrestling 101 right there, folks. And soon after that, both men brawl through the crowd and up into the concourse area, where they use several food items as weapons, including soda, popcorn, and perhaps the most vicious of them all, the dreaded funnel cake sugar to the eyes. Tough to come back from that one. But after that brief detour, they head back through the crowd and make their way back to the ring. And at this point, we actually get a bit of a funny moment as Jerry Lawler proceeded to chuckle at a sign in the crowd that said, Pierre, we miss you, dear. That's D-E-E-R. Jim Ross then took the king to task and said, You probably laughed when Bambi got killed, didn't you? To which Lawler then rightfully pointed out, Bambi didn't get killed, Bambi's mother got killed. Jerry Lawler, no doubt a subscriber to Disney+. Plus. But then things got a bit more disturbing as the conversation about Pierre continued, as Lawler mentioned that it took him three hours to bury his pet cat, and when J.R. asked him what took so long, the king responded, quote, Damn thing kept moving! I feel like Jerry Lawler may be coming soon to an episode of Mindhunter, so be on the lookout for that. But anyway, back in the ring, Hardcore Holly set up a table, and he then attempted to pick up Al, but Al Snow escaped, kicked Holly in the stomach, and he then drilled Holly with a powerbomb right through the table. Snow fell on top of him, referee Mike Kyoto made the count, and yes, that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of the match, and still WWF Hardcore Champion, Al Snow. And by the way, after witnessing the carnage of the match, Jim Ross then said, and I quote, There's bodies and debris lying everywhere, so yeah, I'll just leave that there. And once the match ends, we cut backstage, where Michael Cole was with Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe. Regarding Vince McMahon's injury, Briscoe confirms that an ambulance is on its way to the arena, and Patterson says that, in his opinion, Vince's ankle is broken. And uh, that ambulance will come into play in just a moment, by the way. But now, well, that takes us to the moment that we all unfortunately remember from this show. We cut back into the arena where Jim Ross kicks us into a video montage, recapping us on the recent antics of the Blue Blazer. And what you'll hear is that after that montage, it then briefly cuts back to JR, where he kicks us into a pre-taped Blue Blazer interview with Kevin Kelly from earlier tonight, and we can immediately tell that something has gone horribly wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, coming up next, we're born a different man situation a little bit later. Intercontinental title on the line here. The Godfather to defend against the Blue Blazer. Wink, wink, yeah, we know it's Owen Hart, but he thinks he's a superhero. And if you don't believe us, just listen to this. The Blue Blazer is back in the WWF because the WWF needs the Blue Blazer back. Why me? Because the WWF needs a superhero like the Blue Blazer. And one last thing in closing to all my little Blue Blazers. Take your vitamins, 
say your prayers and drink your milk. Folks, uh, let's take you now to an interview conducted earlier tonight uh, with uh, Kevin Kelly and uh, and the uh, the Blue Blazer, and uh, we got big problems out here. Well, Blue Blazer, you've got a big match tonight, going after the Intercontinental Championship, taking on the Godfather. Ooh, the Godfather. Just saying his name makes my blue blood boil. Ooh, the Godfather. My arch nemesis. He represents everything that's wrong with the WWF. But fear not, because I, the Blue Blazer, will always triumph over evildoers. And you know why? Because I always take my vitamins, say my prayers, and drink my milk. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, when you're doing live television, uh, a lot of uh, things can happen, and, and sometimes uh, they are not good. Uh, the Blue Blazer, as we know, as Owen Hart, was going to make a very spectacular superhero-like entrance from the rafters, and something went terribly wrong here. Uh, certainly, uh, Owen Hart, Blue Blazer, very serious situation here at this point in time is being attended to by the by the uh, the EMTs. Uh, this is not a part of the uh, entertainment here tonight. We are as this is as real uh, as it real can be here. And uh, the EMTs are tending to Owen in the ring now. And we are again uh, we are at a little bit of a loss in this situation. I've been doing this for uh, uh, more years than I uh, would like to. To admit and this uh, is the well it's one of the most shocking things I've ever seen this is not a, a your typical wrestling uh, storyline this is a real situation Owen Hart was to ascend in a superhero like entrance from the ceiling of this arena and something terribly terribly went wrong I don't know if the harness broke or what the malfunction was and uh, we are going to keep our cameras uh, on this crowd at this point in time simply because we are going to move on, ladies and gentlemen, as best we can. Uh, coming up in a few moments, try to get our uh, situation here back together. Coming up in a few moments, it will be a very unique matchup. And certainly All My Children has nothing on these four superstars about to get it on. Even all these years later, I still remember that line from Jim Ross. We got big problems out here. And after they play that Blue Blazer interview, instead of showing the ring, we cut to a shot of the crowd, and JR then proceeds to fill us in on the details that he was aware of at the time. Owen Hart, as the Blue Blazer, was supposed to descend from the ceiling, but something clearly went wrong, causing him to plummet into the ring. And as JR was speaking, EMTs were on the scene tending to Owen in what I assume was no more than 15 feet from where JR was sitting. And as he put it to us, the viewers, at the time, this was not a wrestling storyline, this was real life. And for a further explanation, let's once again go back to the book, Broken Hearts by Martha Hart, for an explanation, and I will warn you in advance, this does get a bit intense. Quote, The lights were then dimmed, the cue for Owen to steady himself for his descent. It was now 40 minutes into the show. Bobby Talbert instructed Owen to climb over the four-foot hand railing and position himself on the outside of the scaffolding. Owen had trouble negotiating the maneuver, so Jim Vincent facilitated things by lifting Owen's cape. The city rigger then retreated to ensure the rope would not get snagged anywhere on the catwalk's floor when Owen was to begin his manual descent. 
At first, facing away from Talbert, Owen turned and held onto the railing, trying not to look down. Talbert checked the tension of the equipment by lowering Owen a few feet, at which point the caped crusader let go of the railing. Dangling with his shoulders parallel to the catwalk floor, Owen placed his hands on his harness and was ready to be lowered. He hung there for a few minutes. Everything seemed fine to Talbert. Down in the ring, a referee was clearing debris from the hardcore match. On the Jumbotron was a 40-second profile of the Blue Blazer. Perhaps being somewhat choked by the cumbersome cape, Owen extended his elbows out and away from his body in an effort to make a subtle adjustment. It was then the three riggers were horrified to hear the distinct sound of the snap shackles release. Talbert looked down immediately to see Owen plunging towards the ring, falling backwards and in a slight clockwise spiral before landing violently 78 feet below. Several fans heard him scream in terror all the way down. For most who were glued to the video montage on the Jumbotron, the first they saw of the Blue Blazer live that night was the split second before he savagely met the top rope of the wrestling ring. Narrowly missing the metal post that supported the turnbuckle in the southwest corner of the ring, Owen's upper left side absorbed the violent impact of his plunge. Shattering his left arm just above the elbow and causing massive internal injuries upon initial contact, Owen was flipped backwards by the highly strung cable. His 229-pound body caromed into the ring, where it sprang a foot off the canvas before settling in the corner. Lying motionless on his back, with his feet pointing towards the center of the ring and his head mere feet from the apron, it took several seconds for his rubbery arms to rest at his side after bouncing off the spring-like canvas. Unconscious due to the violent impact that tore his aorta and instantly began filling his lungs with blood, an innate survival reflex prompted the muscles and nerves of a wide-eyed Owen to attempt to sit up. Described by one man as looking like someone struggling to finish off a set of 100 abdomen crunches with one final desperate attempt, Owen was unable to do much more than lift his mast head a few inches off the mat. His attempt at one final desperate breath finished with him returning his head to the mat and turning towards a ringside photographer, his eyes staring blankly ahead. End quote. And so, once Owen hits the mat, several people scamper into the ring, including two of the attendants from the ambulance that had been hired for the night, two off-duty police officers, some medical personnel, and Jerry the King Lawler, who gets up from his commentary position. Meanwhile, for some reason, Jim Ross is presumably told to move things along, so he kicks us into a video montage for the next match, Val Venus and Nicole Bass versus Jeff Jarrett and Deborah. And when he comes back, he provides us with a further update on the situation, and as you'll hear, Jerry Lawler eventually does return to the commentary table, and, well, you'll hear what he says. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, again, Owen Hart was scheduled to uh, descend from the uh, top here, the Kemper Arena, uh, in, a, again, a superhero-like entrance in this Blue Blazer character. Uh, something has gone terribly wrong. Uh, with the equipment that uh, Owen Hart was being lowered down to the ring uh, and the paramedics are working on Owen Hart. Let me tell you, we are going to have, a, and we've already had some entertaining things, this is not a part of the show. Uh, I don't know any better way to put it, this is not a wrestling angle. This is real life. Owen Hart, uh, with the equipment malfunctioning, is being attended to right now by a host of, uh, of EMTs. Uh, we are not uh, going to... Uh, put this on television it is not a sensationalistic attempt uh, to, uh, to to leave a mark here on on this this event uh, it was uh, again we don't know exactly what malfunctioned 
obviously something in the, in the apparatus. We assume, and that's all we're doing is assuming that that went wrong uh, unless uh, Owen inadvertently released himself before he was near the ring. Uh, so again, we will have our mixed tag team matchup. We will have uh, the rest of this broadcast. But the bigger issue now is that a human being, uh, Owen Hart, uh, has been terribly injured uh, here on this live broadcast. So uh, we will, uh, again, there's been so many things that have happened here, but right now nothing is more important than the health and the welfare of not only a great athlete, but a, but a very unique and a good human being who is uh, now being attended to in the ring. And again, uh, I can re only reiterate the best way that I know how, and if I'm not being as articulate uh, as uh, I would like to be, I hope that you can understand that this was not, I repeat, this was not uh, a wrestling angle. This was not uh, a score, part of the storyline. Uh, this was uh, a terribly, terribly um, tragic situation. And the EMTs now are giving Owen Hart um, external heart massage. There are several, several folks are there to attend to him. And uh, Jerry Lawler back joining me here. King, I was just reiterating the fans. This is not a part of the show. Uh, we're here to entertain and have fun, but this is neither. No, it's uh, it's it doesn't look good at all. So again, uh, the Owen is being attended to. Uh, there, he is now leaving the ring. We are not going to sensationalize this event by by taping it or by showing you what's going on and Owen Hart getting a, a tremendous uh, ovation here uh, as he is being. Uh, carried from the ring and thank God that the EMTs who are already here tonight are uh, standing by that they were here and able to get here so quickly and folks uh, again there's so many things going on we will keep you updated on this situation so as you heard there Jerry Lawler the guy who we're used to hearing crack jokes and take nothing seriously returns to the commentary table and says it doesn't look good at all and at the time, I remember that being a very ominous sign. But as you heard there, toward the end of that clip, they did manage to put Owen on a gurney and wheel him out of the ring, which got noticeable applause from the audience. Most of them appeared to realize this was a serious situation, except perhaps for the one guy in the crowd proudly holding up a sign that said, Val Venus is my daddy. Somehow, during all this, that guy thought, you know what? Still got to show the sign. Took me a long time to write those five words. Got to make sure it gets on TV. Hope you're proud of that one, sir. And by the way, in Martha's book, she states that while all this rescue effort is going on, a WWF doctor is trying to help out, but unfortunately he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. She doesn't name him by name in the book, but she points out that he wasn't a native English speaker, which makes me think that she's referring to Francois Petit, who, I will remind you, is a chiropractor and not an actual medical doctor. Essentially, Petit keeps trying to, quote-unquote, help until one of the ambulance attendants asks him to sign a doctor intervention form, which Petit refuses to do, presumably because he's not a real doctor. And again, I should clarify that Martha doesn't name the doctor by name in the book, so I'm just adding my own assumption here, but I feel pretty confident that she's talking about Francois Petit since he was known to be at these shows. Also, as a quick side note, Jimmy Corderas was scheduled to be the referee for the Blue Blazer Godfather match, and when Owen fell, Corderas was actually in the ring, clearing out debris from the previous hardcore match. And in fact, when Owen falls, his foot actually hits Corderas in the shoulder, but he ends up being okay. 
As a precaution, though, Corderas doesn't end up working for the rest of the show, but needless to say, things were very close to being somehow even worse than they ended up being. But anyway, in an attempt to keep the show going for whatever reason, we then go backstage where a visibly shaken Kevin Kelly is with Jeff Jarrett and Deborah, and, well, you can tell that no one is really in the proper frame of mind here. Jarrett actually has his hand on his head, and he's pacing out of the frame when the interview begins, so this is pretty rough stuff. But for some reason, they felt the need to continue on as though what just happened didn't happen, so here's that promo. Jeff and Deborah, I know your mind's probably on other things right now, but the question, of course, is, uh, you know, how are things going to go in this mixed tag team match uh, tonight? Well, if you want to talk about chances, i tell you one thing. My daddy should tell me one thing about chances, and he'd say, Weedy. De Deborah, this shut up. Uh, let's talk about business. First off, Owen Hart, I'm praying for you, buddy. I am too. Val Venus. You've been chasing these puppies around. Well, pal, I got news for you. Those are my puppies, and they always have been. But if you want to take for old time's sake another smash hit, well, come on, pal. You just tell your Amazon partner to stay out of the way, because I have no qualms about hitting a he-she when she's bigger than me. Damn it, Deborah, let's go. Owen? Owen? You're in our prayers, brother. Owen, we love you. Now, just for the record here, I feel like Jarrett telling Deborah to shut up was clearly part of the design of the promo and not him actually telling Deborah to shut up, because he then kicks into his own promo on Val Venus and Nicole Bass. And I only mention that part because I've heard people say over the years that Jarrett was legitimately telling Deborah to be quiet, but I just didn't get that at all. The whole thing struck me as the standard format of a wrestling promo, with the obvious exception being that Jarrett and Deborah were mentioning that they were praying for Owen, so that's just my two cents, but again, that's how it came across to me. And also, of all people, the ones you had lined up for this interview were the two people who Owen was most closely aligned with over the past seven months. Talk about the worst possible scenario there. And then, once that concludes, we immediately go right back into the arena where Jeff Jarrett's music plays. And yes, Jarrett and Deborah then come out from backstage literally seconds after cutting that promo. And usually when Jarrett's music hits, it gets a big pop from the crowd because the fans are excited to see Deborah. But this time, I think the fans are initially like, really? The show's still going? Okay, then. Although keep in mind, this is 1999. Pretty much no one has a cell phone. There's no texting yet. And if you're in the arena at the time, I could see the mindset being, well, they're continuing the show, so maybe Owen's going to be all right. I mean, they certainly wouldn't keep it going if he wasn't okay, right? So, uh, yeah, we'll touch on that later. And even Jim Ross seems a bit surprised that the show is still going on because he chimes in with this. Well, ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, the, the show must go on here. And uh, we will do our best to keep you updated as to uh, the condition of Owen Hart. We'll do our best to get back into this event. Here comes Jeff Jarrett and Deborah. Deborah is the WWF Women's Champion, as we know. Deborah is not a trained wrestler, King, and, there's, and this is such a unique thing. I think Susan Lucci of all my children should referee this uh, soap opera lace confrontation. Wow. How's that for a line you'll probably never hear again on commentary? Well, ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, the show must go on here. And even after JR does that whole intro of the match, when he kicks it over to the king, all Lawler can muster is a half-hearted, wow, pretty stark stuff. 
And for the record, despite all this insanity, Jarrett comes out doing his usual routine of holding up his guitar, and Deborah has a big smile on her face, so it certainly appears like they're able to keep things together, although I'm sure both of them are just absolute messes right now. Personally, I can't imagine having to go out and perform after witnessing one of your best friends plummet 78 feet from the ceiling, but maybe your instincts just kick in and you go on autopilot. I really don't know. I've never been in that situation, so I won't pretend to know. And by the way, if you're watching on the WWE Network, they completely cut out everything related to Owen. So if you queue up over the edge on the network, you'll see that interview with Patterson and Briscoe where they talk about the state of Vince's ankle, and then it cuts right to this match. Probably not a surprise, but I feel like it warranted mentioning anyway. And yes, they also edit out JR's comment about the show having to go on. So anyway, Val Venus then comes out from backstage, and once again, in a long list of things we probably don't need on this show, Val proceeds to grab a mic and do one of his pre-match sexual innuendo promos. However, he doesn't quite get it right. Hello, ladies. So Kansas is known as the Show Me State. <laughs> uh, that would be Missouri, actually, but duh. Well, ladies, you know how the old saying goes. You show me yours, <laughs> and I'll show you mine. I don't think Val makes straight A's in geography, but... So yes, the confused Val Venus apparently thinks he's in Kansas City, Kansas, when he's actually in Kansas City, Missouri, so he ends up botching his promo a bit here. And of course, Jim Ross corrects him, with Jerry Lawler saying, duh, and I love how the king mocks Val a bit for fucking up here. Maybe, I don't know, he had other things on his mind while he was speaking? Just a thought there. Plus, I'm actually going to give Val a pass here. I'm sure a lot of people get confused over the fact that Kansas City is mostly located in Missouri instead of Kansas. He's Canadian. It's not his home country. Honest mistake. And then Nicole Bass comes to the ring, and she actually enters to the Big Show's first WWF theme song, the one that sounds like it says, Slap My Beef. So it's nice to see that they've recycled that one. And so, yes, just minutes after Owen Hart plunged from the rafters into the ring, we're having a match in that very same ring, Jeff Jarrett and the WWF Women's Champion Deborah versus Val Venus and Nicole Bass in a mixed tag team match. Should the show have continued? I'll give my take on that a little bit later on, but I'm sure you can probably guess how I feel on that one. So early on, again I want to point to the fact that the fans may have been thinking that Owen was okay, because we get a loud, we want puppies chant from the crowd. And I've got to assume, if you think Owen was fucked, you probably wouldn't be starting that chant. I mean, I really want to believe that, so let's just run with it. And mercifully in this match, Jared and Val do most of the heavy lifting because, as JR is keen to remind us, neither Deborah nor Nicole Bass are trained wrestlers. In fact, this is Deborah's first real match in the WWF, not counting evening gown matches, and wow, what wonderful circumstances to compete under. Good lord. Surprisingly, though, when Deborah and Nicole are first in the ring together, it's actually Deborah who goes on offense, slapping Nicole in the face and then jumping on her back and choking her. But of course, Deborah then quickly tags right back out, which forces Jared and Val to re-enter the ring. Remember, men can only fight men, and women can only fight women in these matches. 
And shortly thereafter, mercifully, we get our finish as Jarrett proceeds to distract referee Teddy Long, which allows Deborah to grab a guitar and sneak into the ring, where Nicole Bass is stopping to pose for the fans. Deborah then smashes Nicole in the back with the guitar, but amusingly, it doesn't even break, and Nicole doesn't sell it at all. Instead, Nicole then rips off Deborah's shirt, exposing her bra, and giving the fans what they clearly paid to see. However, Val Venus then reemerges. he nails Jarrett with a back suplex, he climbs to the top rope, and then, yes, he nails Double J with the money shot, his top rope splash. He makes the cover, Teddy Long makes the count, and that's good enough for the three count. So yes, your winners of the match are Val Venus and Nicole Bass. And after the match, Val raises Nicole's arm in the air in triumph, to which she responds by forcibly making out with Val. Remember that Nicole has been pursuing Val for weeks now, with Val continually avoiding her, but this time around, after Nicole kisses him, we get a close-up of Val's wide-eyed face, and he's smiling. He also mouths the word, wow, as though he was impressed with Nicole's prowess, so perhaps Val and Nicole will become a thing? Uh, well, no, that doesn't happen for numerous reasons, but we'll get into that eventually. And then, once that segment concludes, we cut backstage where, of all things, Vince McMahon is sitting on a stretcher being loaded into an ambulance by EMTs with Patterson and Briscoe by his side. Michael Cole then comes up to Vince and tries to interview him, and, well, just take a listen. Excuse me, Vince, I understand this may not be a good time, but... Oh my God, what happened? What happened? What happened? What happened? What happened? What happened to your ankle, Debbie? Oh, you go to the hospital. You take care of your little ankle. It's okay. I promise. I promise to be an impartial, special guest referee. I'm going to pull it right down the middle, Dad. One, two, three. And when you return, The Undertaker will once again become the World Wrestling Federation champion. I'll do it in your honor. I'll do it in your honor, Dad. That's it. Bye-bye. Take care. See you later. Well, I'll tell you what, it didn't look good for Stone Cold Steve Austin now as Vince McMahon scheduled to be the second referee along with his son Shane. Vince on his uh, way to a medical center here to get that ankle checked out. It could be broken. Okay, so after hearing that, you're probably wondering why the hell is Vince McMahon doing a segment where he's on a stretcher heading to a hospital and being mocked by Shane for it at a time when one of his wrestlers is literally fighting for his life. Well, in truth, this segment was not being done live like Jared and Deborah's promo. It was actually filmed right before Owen fell. And in fact, the two EMTs who are shown helping Vince into the ambulance here are the actual EMTs who ran to the ring to help Owen just moments later. Now, bear with me here for a second because this is where things get a bit complicated. So the WWF hired these EMTs and this ambulance for the sole purpose of using them for this segment. Essentially, these EMTs were not on duty. They were hired just to come to the arena and take part in this skit. However, at this point, Owen has now been taken to the ambulance, but here's where the trouble lies. The company providing the ambulance, Emergency Providers Incorporated, had a policy which dictated that because this ambulance was only supposed to be there on standby for the duration of the broadcast, the EMTs would need to wait for another ambulance to come to the arena to get Owen. But backstage, the increasingly worried and agitated wrestlers don't know that, so they see Owen lying in an ambulance, and they're getting pissed off, asking why it's not going to the hospital. And in particular, in her book, Martha Hart actually singles out The Rock as being particularly pissed off about the situation, yelling, quote, Who's driving this motherfucker? 
And at this point, another unidentified wrestler jumps into the passenger side before being told he has to leave. So essentially right now, it's absolute chaos backstage. Oh, and uh, someone else lurking around backstage at this time? A WWF cameraman who is intent on capturing everything on film. And by the way, this is very much in keeping with what I assume is Vince's directive to get everything on camera, because remember, they did this exact same thing in 2012 when Jerry Lawler suffered his heart attack live on the air. Even now, more than seven years later, you can go on the WWE's YouTube page and watch a video titled, An Exclusive Look at the Night Jerry the King Lawler Suffered a Heart Attack During Raw, which features backstage footage of EMTs tending to him. And I mean, really... How can you rationalize that? There's a chance we have a snuff video on our hands, but if not, it'll be an inspirational story. Yeah, uh, no thanks. Maybe just don't follow someone around with a camera when they're dying? How about that? Does it, is that too much to ask? Probably. It, I expect too much. It's my fault. But anyway, getting back to Over the Edge, at this point, because things were getting hostile and no one was controlling the mob of angry wrestlers, the EMTs wisely decided to make the judgment call to go against company policy and drive Owen to the nearby Truman Medical Center about three miles away. So yes, literally all of this was going on behind the scenes while Jeff Jarrett and Deborah were facing Val Venus and Nicole Bass. You'd never know it from watching the match, but behind the scenes, it is a clusterfuck. But of course, the show continues on, and we must get to our next match, the Road Dog Jesse James versus Badass Billy Gunn. Yes, that's right. This is the very first match the New Age Outlaws had with each other after the breakup of one of the most successful tag teams in WWF slash WWE history. Had you forgotten that this match existed? Because I sure had, for obvious reasons. And before the match, they do a video recap of this feud, and I will say, it's pretty much lost to history, but I think it's really well done here because they take the lyrics of the DX theme, and Michael Cole's narration ties it into this feud. For example, on the screen it shows the lyrics, We just got tired of doing what you told us to do, and Cole then follows that up by saying, Billy Gunn got tired of sharing the limelight with his DX buddies. It's actually really good stuff. And once that video concludes, we cut backstage where Kevin Kelly is with the Road Dog, and let's take a listen to what he has to say. And for the record here, what Kevin Kelly says is cut off at the beginning. That's not an error on my part. That's actually how it sounded on the original broadcast. So let's take a listen. Billy Gunn, it's got to be Springfield. Owen Hart, first of all, I'm praying for you, brother. Now then, Sir William, I hope somebody's praying for you because it's all boiling down to tonight. And it's me, it's the dog pound, I'm the D-O-double-G, you're nothing but a P to that U to that double S. Kevin Kelly, I put the burden on you, you make the call, is it the D-O-double-G or the P-U-double S? I really don't know. Oh. <laughs> oh. oh, you didn't know? So for the record, if you watch that promo on the WWE Network, it completely cuts out the part where Road Dog says he's praying for Owen because, you know, why leave in such a nice gesture? Although I have to say, on a related note, it struck me as a little bit tacky that he said he was praying for Owen, but then he went into wrestler mode and said he hoped someone was praying for Billy. That just kind of made me feel a little bit... eh. You know, kind of creepy, kind of unnecessary. Maybe keep those things separate, you know what I mean? I don't know, it was a tough night for all involved, so I suppose I shouldn't pass too much judgment. 
But as you heard there, it was actually a pretty nice touch because at the end of the promo there, Road Dog actually took the mic from Kevin Kelly and walked to the ring where he kicked into his usual ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls routine. Again, on another night, I feel like that would be something we would be remembering as kind of a fun moment. But tonight, not so much. But after Road Dog does his spiel, we cut backstage again where Kevin Kelly is now with Billy Gunn. And in case you were wondering, no, Mr. Ass does not make reference to Owen Hart, but he does tell Road Dog, quote, For the past couple years, I've been carrying you around like a bad case of the clap. So it's nice to see that even after we all witnessed a tragedy a few minutes prior, it hasn't stopped the wrestlers from calling each other pusses and referencing sexually transmitted diseases. I mean, priorities, people. So as for the match, I have to say when Billy Gunn was on offense, he did a lot of stalling. And again, I'm not necessarily going to fault him for that because I'm sure he had a billion things running through his mind at this point, but it was noticeable that he was just kind of standing around for long portions of this match, staring down at Road Dog or talking trash to referee Tim White. And unfortunately, it made for a very boring match in what should be a bitter feud. I will say, though, the crowd did wake up for a bit when Road Dog mounted his comeback. So the DOWG started working over Billy in one of the corners, but in a strange spot I don't think I've ever seen, Billy started unraveling his wrist tape. He then took a piece of it, held it in his hands, and basically clotheslined Road Dog in the throat with his wrist tape behind Tim White's back. He then got a running start and nailed Road Dog with the Fame Asser. He covered him, Tim White made the count, and yes, that was enough for the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of the match, Badass Billy Gunn. And after the match concludes, well, Let's just say that Jim Ross could probably have chosen his words a little bit more carefully when Jerry Lawler asked him about the fate of Degeneration X. To earn a controversial victory here over the Road Dog and a guarantee of King, we haven't seen the last of these two getting it on. This one's far from home. But would you agree that we have seen the last of DX? Well, it's, uh, it ain't dead, it's terminal. Mr. Ego, Mr. Ass, get a little look at it here. This is uh, after the, uh, the clothesline with the tape. I mean, holy shit on that choice of phrasing there, JR. The fact that he said, if it ain't dead, it's terminal, right at the same time when someone may literally be dead, if not terminal, I mean, wow. To his credit, though, I think JR realized it as soon as he said it, though, because we then got about five seconds of silence on commentary before he kicked us into a replay of the finish. Still, though, yikes. And from there, we cut backstage again where Michael Cole was with Shane McMahon, since Vince McMahon has been... <sighs> taken to the hospital. It appears as though Shane will be the only one acting as a special guest referee tonight, but fear not, because Shane claims that he will call the match right down the middle, completely impartially. Of course, it should be noted he made that exact same claim last month at Backlash when he was the special guest referee for that main event, and, uh, yeah, he wasn't impartial, so stay tuned, I guess. And from there, we then go right back into the arena for our next match, and it is an eight-man tag team elimination match. Corporate ministry members, the big boss man, the acolytes, and Viscera versus union members, Mankind, the big show, Ken Shamrock, and Test. And I have to say, when all eight of these guys come to the ring, many of them look completely disengaged, which made me think that by now, they had gotten the official word on what went down earlier. And just to confirm that, I actually opened up Mick Foley's second autobiography, Foley is Good, to see if he mentions it, and, well, more on that in just a little bit. 
But seriously, if you take a look at these guys' faces, you can tell they know. But hey, the show must go on, right? Uh. But, well, on a lighter note, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the one and only pay-per-view match for the Union. I guess that's something, right? In all honesty, I really feel like this faction could have had a longer shelf life because the fans were actually into it, but hey, what can you do? So early on in the match, we do get a bit of an amusing moment here, as Jim Ross says that Bradshaw is known to fight at the drop of a hat, to which Jerry Lawler responds by saying, or luggage. And hey, since we need a little bit of levity here, now is as good a time as any to get into this one, because it's a great story, and I love the result. So here's the tale, directly from Bob Hawley's autobiography, The Hardcore Truth, and yes, somehow Bob Hawley actually has an autobiography. It's a bit of a long passage, but I think it's worth it, and we can break up some of the misery here with a story that actually happened on the morning of Over the Edge. Quote, At the Kansas City airport, Steve Blackman and I were waiting around when Bradshaw came over. It was an early morning flight, and John was still drunk from the night before. He started patting Steve's ass. Steve said, John, I don't play that shit. Knock it off. John patted him again, and again. Steve was getting brutally pissed. He told him, John, next time you do that, I'm going to knock your fucking teeth out. So, of course, John did it again. Steve whipped around and backhanded Bradshaw, popping him with jabs in the face. John started swinging and missing, and his head was snapping back with each of Steve's jabs. Steve stepped back, planning to kick Bradshaw's knees out, but he got his leg caught in a bag handle. Al Snow and I grabbed Steve, Ron Simmons grabbed John, and we pulled them apart. John was walking back and forth like a bandy rooster, looking to fight. Before we left, Steve told him, I'm going to fucking kill you. He meant it, too. We got our car and got on the road. Ken Shamrock was riding with us. Me, Blackman, and Shamrock. That's a dangerous car, and I'm the warm one, a teddy bear compared to the other two. That whole journey, Shamrock was poking and prodding Steve, telling him that Bradshaw was going to beat his ass. Steve wasn't saying a word. And who did we see when we checked into the hotel? Bradshaw and Ron were right there. The boys don't always stay at the same hotels, so it was a complete coincidence and not a good one for John. He came over to apologize, and Steve said, No apologies. I'm going to finish you later, and then walked off. We found him in the gym, still boiling mad. Once we were in the arena and had sat down in catering, John walked in. Everybody went silent as Steve stood up. He said, if you've got something to say to me, you say it now or I'm going to finish you in front of everybody. Bradshaw walked over, apologized, and said, I shouldn't have fucked with you, and shook his hand. That was the end of it. Steve sat down and said, Bob, if it wasn't for that bag, John would be in intensive care right now. Trust me, I believe it. If anybody can put Bradshaw in the hospital with one kick, it's Steve Blackman. End quote. So yes, a bit of a side note there, but Jerry Lawler legitimately brought it up on commentary, so I thought it was a road worth taking. Plus, I enjoy any excuse to read a passage about JBL, Mr. Bully himself, getting his ass beat by a much smaller guy. I mean, goddamn, why would you fuck with Steve Blackman of all people? Anyway, back to the union versus the corporate ministry. So instead of recapping this whole thing, since it's an elimination match, I figure I might as well just give you the order of elimination for each competitor. So the aforementioned Bradshaw eliminated Test when Farouk distracted Test, allowing Bradshaw to hit him with a clothesline from hell, Ministry 4, Union 3. Ken Shamrock then entered the ring, and after mixing it up with Bradshaw for a bit, he put him in the ankle lock, resulting in a tap-out, Ministry 3, Union 3. 
Shamrock then put Farouk in the ankle lock, and he refused to relinquish it, even when referee Mike Kyoto warned him. So Shamrock nailed Kyoto with a belly-to-back suplex, resulting in him being disqualified. Ministry 3, Union 2. But then the Big Show entered the ring and immediately chokeslammed the one-legged Farouk for the easy pinfall, so Ministry 2, Union 2. Big Show then impressively scoop-slammed the 500-plus-pound Viscera, which got a big pop from the crowd, but both men then brawled to the back, resulting in a double countout, so the match was then down to Mankind for the Union and the Big Boss Man for the Corporate Ministry. And then, speaking of big pops, when Mankind pulls out Mr. Sacco, we get easily the loudest pop of the night from the crowd so far, and yes, Foley then finishes the match by putting Sacco into Boss Man's mouth, resulting in the submission and a victory for the Union. The fans are happy, Foley celebrates for a bit, all good stuff. But then, but then, right after the pinfall is registered, we get complete silence on commentary for 20 straight seconds, which clearly is not the norm for JR and the King. And at this point, I'm just surmising this on my own, but I'm assuming someone is in their ears telling them some horrible news. And sure enough, shortly after that silence on commentary, we go back to Jim Ross, and, well, unfortunately, he confirms our worst fears in what is probably still the worst moment in the history of wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen, um, earlier tonight, here at, uh, in Kansas City, uh, tragedy befell the World Wrestling Federation and all of us. Owen Hart was uh, set to make an entrance from the ceiling, and uh, he fell from the ceiling. And I have the unfortunate responsibility to let everyone know that Owen Hart has died. Owen Hart has tragically died from that accident here tonight. 20-plus years later, it's still unbelievable. I mean, knowing that he fell from the ceiling earlier, it was probably safe to assume that Owen dying would be the likely result, but hearing the official confirmation from JR is just devastating. And all for some stupid shit that didn't even need to happen. I mean, literally, there was no point putting a non-stuntman in that situation, and actually, as I'll cover a little bit later, the way this was arranged was dangerous, even for a stuntman, because the necessary safety precautions were clearly not taken. So going back to Martha Hart's book here, she tells us about the final moments of Owen's life at the hospital. Quote, While fears escalated that he had by now suffered brain damage, the only thing that mattered was that he regained consciousness. Four minutes later, in an effort to stimulate the heart, a 16-gauge IV catheter inserted earlier in his left arm by paramedics was used to feed Owen's unresponsive body with epinephrine. It immediately blew the vein. A minute later, another amp of epinephrine was administered through an endotracheal tube. Then at 8.06 p.m., a large IV was placed in the right groin to pump in more epinephrine and atropine. Still, monitors recorded no signs of progress, no pulse. His heart continued to show slight electrical activity, but nothing of significance. Very little hope remained as the precious minutes ticked away. Outside in the waiting room, retired wrestler Harley Race paced anxiously, awaiting word on his longtime pal. He would later be joined by Jeff Jarrett, still in full wrestling gear, and a host of concerned wrestlers who numbered close to two dozen by night's end. At 8.07, a final amp of epinephrine and atropine went into Owen's right femoral line. 
Four minutes later, he was still unresponsive. CPR continued for a final few minutes until doctors determined all resuscitation efforts were futile. Thirteen minutes after arriving at the hospital, 33 minutes since the fall, all work on Owen was stopped. At 8.12 p.m. Central Standard Time, the supervising doctor called code. At age 34, my Owen was dead. End quote. So there it is. Owen Hart is dead. The audience at home knows this. The wrestlers know this. But hey, the fans in attendance don't know because it hasn't been announced to them. So clearly there's only one logical choice. Continue the show. I mean, yes, a man is dead, but these people paid their hard-earned money, right? Gotta keep that train moving, clearly. And on that note, here's the passage from Mick Foley's second autobiography, Foley is Good, which I had alluded to a little bit earlier. Quote, Owen Hart was pronounced dead shortly before my match went into the ring. The fans at home were told of the terrible news, while the live fans had no idea. Again, I don't know if that was the proper decision, or if a proper decision even exists. I do know that I dreaded walking out to the ring and taking part in a match on what was the worst night in our sports history. My senses all felt numb as I walked through the curtain. The referee warned us of a hole in the ring right near our corner. I stood in that corner for over 10 minutes and never realized that the hole was where Owen had landed. I looked at the blood stain no farther than three feet from my shoes and had no idea that it was Owen's blood. I had a feeling of nausea and a little feeling of hatred when fans actually cheered during our match. I remember China in tears after her match, wondering what type of person would yell vile insults at her in the wake of such a tragedy. Neither of us knew at the time that the live crowd was unaware of Owen's death. I would like to think that wrestling fans as a whole are not cold-hearted. I would like to give the fans in attendance that night the benefit of the doubt. Hopefully they had no idea of what had happened to Owen. Possibly they've seen wrestlers perform so many death-defying stunts and walk away that in their minds they didn't feel that such a tragedy was possible. End quote. And like I said before, I do side with Mick there. If those fans in the crowd knew Owen was dead, I think, number one, a lot of them probably would have left, or number two, they would be sitting there in stunned disbelief, just as they were when Owen initially fell. I really do think the fact they continued the show could potentially carry the underlying implication of well, they wouldn't keep the show going if he was badly hurt. Or shit, since this is wrestling, maybe some of the fans somehow thought that it was all a work anyway. Who knows? But what can't be denied is that the WWF now obviously knows that Owen is dead at this point. And yet, Vince McMahon made the call to have those wrestlers, many of whom were close personal friends with Owen, go out and perform in the very same ring he just fell into. In fact, as Martha mentioned in her book in that passage earlier, The Rock was one of the main people backstage frantically telling the EMTs they needed to drive Owen to the hospital, but yet now here he is about to come out to the ring for his match. I don't know, to me, that's pretty fucked up. And by the way, if you ever wanted the ultimate the show must go on moment, just seconds after Jim Ross finishes telling us that Owen died, they kick into a video montage of the Rock Triple H feud. I mean, Jesus Christ. And then when that video concludes, we go to Kevin Kelly, who's backstage with The Rock. And to his credit, I suppose you'd never know he was distraught about all the crazy shit that went down, but he only gets out a few words before China gets in his face, causing Rock to tell her that she's either going to get a slap in the face or a Rock Burger, so yes, he's still trying to make Rock Burger a thing. But of course, Triple H jumps The Rock from behind and starts trying to cut off his cast until, of all people, Mankind wanders into the frame, fresh from his match. He attempts to help out Rock, but China gets in his face, which allows Triple H to smack Foley in the back with a lead pipe, 
And so, minutes before Rock is set to go face Triple H, Hunter and China just left him laying alongside mankind. And, well, that segues us back into the arena for our next match, and it is indeed The Rock versus Triple H, who is, of course, accompanied by China. Before the match begins, however, Triple H grabs a mic and says that he'll allow the referee to count Rock out so he doesn't have to face him, but of course, Rock shows up anyway, still wearing his cast. And by the way, when Hunter is on the mic, you can see China staring off intently toward the crowd, and I couldn't help but think that this was the moment Mick Foley referenced in that passage I read, where he said that China was in tears afterward because people were yelling mean shit at her. I feel like this might be the actual moment, which is kind of sad in retrospect. Well, sadder than it already was. So early on, Rock and Hunter brawl around ringside, at which point The Rock goes over to the Spanish announce table, grabs a headset, and attempts to inject a little bit of comedy into the proceedings, but with one noticeable tribute at the end. Now this is for The Rock and all of his Latino The Rock speaks a little Spanish, and here it is. The Rock kicking your monkey assy. Oh, and The Rock loves you. And for the record, at the end there when he says, Owen, The Rock loves you, they also edit that out on the WWE Network because that's clearly necessary. Remember, folks, the WWE loves reminding you of Owen, just not how Owen died. That's the part they're keen to avoid because, you know, it's all their fucking fault. So anyway, eventually Triple H rips off The Rock's cast, exposing his broken left arm, and Hunter then spends the majority of the match working over that arm. And at one point, China slides a chair into the ring for Triple H to use, but before he can do that, referee Earl Hebner yanks it out of Hunter's hands. Hunter then starts shoving Hebner, but Earl proceeds to yell right back in Triple H's face, so Hunter just clocks him right in the face, and yes, that's your finish. The Rock wins via disqualification because Triple H punched a referee. No one has to job, very Vince Russo. But we're not done yet because Rock then takes the opportunity to snatch the chair away, and yes, he blasts Triple H in the head with an unprotected chair shot. And interestingly, Triple H actually does a blade job off of that chair shot, which seems, I don't know, like a little bit of bad taste after the Owen thing? Maybe, or am I overreacting there? To me, that's just kind of like, we've had enough real carnage for one night, haven't we? But what do I know? And then we get a moment which actually struck me as kind of funny, because Earl Hebner goes to raise the Rock's arm in victory, but he tries to raise the Rock's injured arm, so Rock also punches Hebner in the face. Clearly a very bad night to be the WWF's senior official. So Rock then turns his attention back toward Triple H, beating him around the ring before throwing him back in and hitting a Rock bottom. He then goes for a people's elbow with the chair positioned on Hunter's face, but China breaks it up. That allows Hunter to grab the chair and smack Rock's injured arm with it. But while he's doing that, Mankind runs out from backstage to provide some backup for The Rock. Foley then chases Triple H with the same pipe Hunter nailed him with backstage, so finally Triple H and China head back to the locker room. Meanwhile, The Rock stares at Mankind with a confused look, as if to say... Why are you helping me? I almost murdered you with 11 chair shots at the Royal Rumble. Also, they really wanted to get Foley away from the Union pretty quickly, huh? He wins the match, and then just minutes later, now he's buddying up to The Rock. Can't say I blame him. Certainly an upgrade. But then, from there, mercifully this show is finally almost over, because it's now time for the main event of the evening— WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Undertaker with special guest referee Shane McMahon and, well, 
maybe also special guest referee Vince McMahon, depending on the health of his ankle. And by the way, in case you were wondering what Vince was actually up to while all this was going on, he did indeed call Martha Hart to let her know that Owen had fallen from the ceiling, because as I mentioned before, Martha wasn't even watching the show. And according to Martha, she initially thought it was Owen calling her and pranking her because he had that reputation for being a practical joker, but pretty soon she realized it was the real deal. In fact, Vince called her to say that Owen had fallen shortly after it happened, but it was actually one of the doctors at the hospital who later called her to confirm that Owen had died. So there's that, just in case you were wondering. But anyway, getting into the main event, Shane comes out from backstage first, followed by Pat Patterson in a referee uniform. So yes, it appears that Patterson is replacing Vince, since he is apparently unable to perform his referee duties due to his injured ankle. So The Undertaker then emerges from backstage, accompanied by Paul Bearer, and he immediately chokeslams Patterson. Sergeant Slaughter and Tony Gurria then come down to ringside and carry Patterson back to the locker room, so it appears as though Shane is once again the only referee for this match. Wise strategy by Taker there. But after that, Stone Cold Steve Austin then emerges from backstage and charges to the ring, so our title match is indeed underway. Austin versus The Undertaker for Stone Cold's WWF Championship, and remember, Shane has stated that if Austin lays a finger on him, he will disqualify him and award the title to The Undertaker. So early on in the match, I feel compelled to point this out. Stone Cold goes to the top rope and hits a flying clothesline to Taker. I mean, where the fuck did that come from? Stone Cold going airborne. But I have to say, this is not a very good match. And again, I'm not putting too much blame on either guy given the circumstances, but it's a pretty dull affair. Both men essentially are taking turns working over each other's legs, with neither of them really selling any of the damage. And of course, as is the custom, we get a lot of walking and brawling on the floor, including into the crowd and near the announce tables. Although at one point, we do get a bit of a fun highlight, as both men brawl up the aisle near the entrance, where the ramp is lined with several glass fixtures that are made to look like stained glass church windows. So, of course, Taker tries to punch Stone Cold, but he moves and accidentally smashes the window. And then Austin throws Taker face-first through another one of the windows for good measure. And as for Shane, he actually does call things down the middle for the most part, including attempting to count the pinfalls when Stone Cold covers The Undertaker, so he was somewhat true to his word. At least, for a while, anyway. Because, toward the end of the match... Austin hit Taker with a second rope elbow drop, and Shane then counted the one, the two, and just as we've seen before in the past, he refused to count the three, acting as though he had hurt his shoulder. Also, as a quick side note here, apparently a second rope elbow drop would have pinned The Undertaker, because he wasn't kicking out, but I digress. So Austin then gets in Shane's face, at which point Paul Bearer slides a chair into the ring for The Undertaker. However, Stone Cold saw it coming, so he Irish whipped Taker into Shane, taking out the boy Wonder. Austin then grabbed the chair and blasted Taker in the skull with it. He went for the pin, but there was no referee until Gerald Briscoe ran out from backstage. Briscoe counted the one, the two, but not the three, as Taker kicked out just in time. And then, just like Taker did to Patterson, he then clotheslines Briscoe, taking him out of the match. Taker then nails Stone Cold with a flying clothesline for good measure, but with both men down on the mat, there was no one left to referee at this point. Or was there? What a clothesline. Shane McMahon is down. Stone Cold Steve Austin, there was no doubt in anybody's mind, had the match won. Hey, wait a minute. Here comes Vince. 
What? This McMahon living. He's just like he left here earlier. What's he doing? This McMahon making the... Well, it's a gutsy effort. He's not even supposed to be here. He's got a broken ankle. That's what we think. That his ankle was broken. You know, he's, he's hurting like hell. But this McMahon is trying to get in the ring as best he can. So yes, what you heard there was Vince McMahon emerging from backstage and limping all the way down to the ring on his injured ankle. Because clearly, Vince didn't have more important things to tend to. He really needed to take the time to do this spot after everything else that happened tonight. We couldn't just call an audible there. But anyway, Stone Cold nailed Taker with a stunner, and Vince went to make the count. But Shane broke it up before Vince could count to three. Vince then got in Shane's face, and we got a bit of a tricky spot here. Stone Cold walked over to see what was going on, so Shane shoved Vince into Austin, knocking Stone Cold down to the ground, at which point The Undertaker rolled Austin up, Shane then dove to the canvas, he made a ridiculously fast three count, and yes, that was enough to give the victory and the WWF Championship to The Undertaker for the third time in his career and the first time since he lost the belt at SummerSlam 1997. So yes, your winner on this night is The Undertaker, sadly in more ways than one. And Stone Cold appears to be in disbelief at what happened, so he actually keeps beating on Taker after the match until the other members of the corporate ministry run down to the ring to break things up. 
Austin eventually manages to chase them all away with a chair, but we go off the air with The Undertaker celebrating by holding Stone Cold's smoking skull belt in the air in the aisleway as a pissed-off Austin looks on. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, surprisingly, we have a new WWF champion bringing Stone Cold's title reign to a close at just under two months. And that was Over the Edge 1999. But of course, the big story here is the Owen Hart situation, so let's quickly dive back into that. Now first of all, how did we get here? Well, if you recall, back on November 15th, 1998, Owen actually did descend from the ceiling as the Blue Blazer on the episode of Sunday Night Heat, which aired right before the Survivor Series. At the time, Owen was feuding with Steve Blackman, and so after Blackman lost his match, the Blue Blazer lowered himself down from the ceiling, and in case you were wondering, yes, you can still watch this segment on the WWE Network, and I'm kind of surprised they haven't edited it out. So of course, on that night, everything went perfectly fine, mainly because all safety precautions had been taken. Owen was fastened in using a locking carabiner, which is the industry safety standard. And if you're not familiar with what a carabiner is, they're usually oval or square-shaped shackles where part of it has a movable piece that you kind of have to push inward to fasten something. I'm probably doing a bad job of explaining it, but I've seen them used on keychains before. They're pretty common. Essentially, all you need to know is that when it comes to stunts like this, it's what the experts recommend that you use to keep someone as safe as possible. In addition, they also recommend redundancy, so essentially you would fasten the person to two carabiners, because if something somehow goes wrong with the first one, at least you have the second one as a backup. And I'm not sure if this is a valid comparison or not, but when I read that, it kind of reminded me of how parachuters or skydivers always have a backup parachute as well, just in case. I would assume the reasoning behind that is similar, but that's, that's just my own personal guess. I'm no safety expert there. But another important point here is that Owen did not need to disconnect from the rope when he did the drop-in before Survivor Series. He was lifted back up to the rafters instead, and that is where things get complicated. Why? Because, well, Vince McMahon apparently wasn't too pleased with how the stunt went back in November, because Owen was kind of sliding around in the aisle for a bit before they pulled him back up to the ceiling, which really, if you think about it, should probably be viewed as helping the segment, because the Blue Blazer is supposed to be a bumbling goofball. But no, Vince had a different idea for the stunt at Over the Edge. 
He wanted Owen to lower himself from the ceiling and then be able to quickly disconnect from the rope, basically falling a short distance into the ring and, of course, making himself look stupid. So with that in mind, the WWF called Joe Branham, the rigger who did the stunt successfully with Owen back in November. The WWF told Branham they wanted to use a snap shackle, not a carabiner, for the upcoming drop-in, and Branham quoted the WWF the same price as before, $5,000, but this time he was told it wasn't in the budget. And for the record, they initially wanted to do the stunt in Orlando, which would have been during that episode of Raw a few weeks ago, you know, the most watched episode in the history of the show. So as if this whole thing wasn't bad enough, they almost did the stunt on live television in front of nearly 10 million people, as opposed to the 416,000 who bought the pay-per-view. Yikes. But anyway, because Branham was concerned about the snap shackle idea, he actually called the WWF back and offered to reduce his price by $2,000 because he knew there'd be plenty of lousy riggers in the area who probably would actually consider what the WWF was proposing, even though he knew it wasn't safe. Ultimately, of course, they didn't do the Orlando drop-in, but they did hold on to that snap shackle idea. And that is where a gentleman named Bobby Talbert comes in. So even though they didn't do the stunt in Orlando, they did hire Talbert, who was based out of the Orlando area, to do the stunt in Kansas City at Over the Edge. And interestingly, Talbert was hired thanks in part to the fact that he had bragged about how he had overseen the exact same type of stunt many times with Sting in WCW. So remember, when Sting took on his persona of the Crow character, he would frequently come down from the rafters on a cable, and of course, all of those drop-ins went completely fine. Here's the problem, though. Bobby Talbert actually didn't oversee those stunts. The actual stunt coordinator in WCW was a guy named Ellis Edwards, who later goes on the record saying that he was insulted that Talbert would even make the claim that he worked on the stunts because Talbert was actually nothing more than an assistant to him, and he only worked on three of Sting's drop-ins. So to recap, what you have here is the WWF looking to do a dangerous stunt with unsafe equipment for a cheap price, and they're hiring an overmatched stunt rigger who's willing to lie about his accomplishments in order to get the gig. Needless to say, bad combination of circumstances. Also, and this is pretty obvious, so it shouldn't need to be said, but I'll say it anyway, Owen Hart is not a fucking stunt man. When they did the stunt back in November, Owen was apparently told about it the day of, and he told the coordinator, quote, don't drop me, I'm scared, before he did the drop-in on Sunday Night Heat. And on the night of Over the Edge, several wrestlers saw Owen pick up the vest he was going to wear and angrily hurl it across the locker room in frustration because of how much he didn't want to do the stunt. And remember, this is Owen Hart, the consummate, easygoing, practical joker, so when his friends backstage see him displaying anger so outwardly, it clearly made an impact on them. And here's another little detail that you may not know. The original plan for the Over the Edge stunt was to have Owen drop in with Max... Mini attached to his harness. Yes, that's right, little person wrestler Max Mini. However, that idea was actually dropped because Owen kept putting off the stunt riggers when they wanted to do a rehearsal, and Max Mini didn't actually speak English, so he would have required a translator to discuss the particulars of the stunt. So then they shifted the initial plan to having Owen and Max Mini do the dual drop-in on tomorrow night's episode of Raw in St. Louis instead, so yes, that's right, they were planning on doing it again the next night. So I suppose if you want one silver lining from this show, it's that Owen Stalling actually inadvertently ended up saving Max Mini's life, so there's one positive, I guess. 
But yes, they do the stunt at Over the Edge, and of course it gets horribly fucked up because, as I mentioned earlier, the way it was set up, Owen could have caused the snap shackle to release by quite literally taking a deep breath. And naturally, because they wanted Owen to be able to disconnect quickly, there was no backup snap shackle either. And speaking of which, the type of shackle they used here was actually designed to be used on sailboats so people can easily disconnect their sails. And if you'd like to be even more depressed, at the time, the retail cost of the shackle they used for Owen's stunt was $68.60. They put a non-stuntman's life in jeopardy by using a shackle for sailboats that cost less than $70. In the later trial, the finance director of Lumar, the company that made the shackle, said it would have been, quote, lunacy to use it in any sort of stunt capacity. So could Owen have said no to the stunt? He could have, but this is where things get tricky. As anyone who has likely ever heard of Owen Hart knows, he was the most easygoing guy around, but he had recently turned down an idea that was pitched to him by Vince Russo, an angle where Owen was fucking Deborah behind Jeff Jarrett's back, which would have led to tensions between the two of them. And as you'll hear from several people on the episode of Raw we'll cover in a bit, Owen's family meant everything to him, and he didn't want to do an angle where his kids could potentially be asking him why he was involved with someone who wasn't their mother. And according to some reports, this is actually where the idea of turning Owen back into the Blue Blazer came from. He wouldn't do the fucking Deborah angle, so they made him the old stick-in-the-mud superhero who was determined to clean up the WWF. But according to Martha, because Owen had already turned down the Deborah angle, he was reluctant to also push back against doing the ceiling stunt because he didn't want people to perceive him as being difficult to work with. Plus, if he turned it down, he also apparently feared that his role would be marginalized, so yes, he probably could have turned the idea down, but needless to say, he was feeling a lot of pressure to go along with it. And of course, with any discussion of Over the Edge, the question that usually seems to come up is, should the show have continued? I'll give my personal opinion. My answer is no, absolutely not. After Owen fell, I suppose you could make the argument that maybe they still thought he would live so you can still keep the show going. But as we know now, it was revealed that he was dead about midway through the show. Jim Ross confirmed it on the air. He died, so for me, that's it. Show's over. I know people have said over the years, well, Owen would have wanted the show to continue, and for me, I think that's completely irrelevant. You have 16,000 fans in attendance who just saw a man fall to his death right in front of them. If you told them, sorry folks, there's been a tragedy, gotta end the show, would literally any of them have complained about that? And oh, by the way, just for the record, according to Bret Hart, who I dare say knew Owen pretty well, he has emphatically stated on numerous occasions that Owen definitely would not have wanted the show to continue. So just remember that the next time some WWE-affiliated dipshit tries to use that line. And speaking of which, I hate to be so cynical on this, but to me, it's not that Owen would have wanted the show to continue. I think it's clearly that... Vince McMahon wanted the show to continue because he didn't want to issue potentially millions of dollars in refunds for the fans in attendance or anyone who purchased the pay-per-view. But hey, guess what? Tough shit. You were just, at the very least, partially responsible for a man's death. This is the Kemper Arena, not the Roman Coliseum. The show doesn't need to go on after someone dies. And Vince's subsequent explanation for continuing the show has been, well, we would have had a riot on our hands if we ended the show which to me really spoke to how he viewed the WWF fans at the time. In his mind, we all would have been just sitting there like, yeah, I know a guy just died, but goddammit, I paid to see Stone Cold. I mean, would any of us have reacted that way? I like to think the answer is no, we weren't that barbaric. 
And actually, on a personal note, I remember that when I watched the show on pay-per-view back in 1999, I was definitely saying, why the fuck is this show still going on? So I can speak for myself there. And speaking of Vince, after the show concluded, he did conduct a press conference where he thankfully comported himself with the grace and dignity which was required of him in this situation. And yes, of course, I'm joking. This is a stunt that's performed on a routine basis uh, in any number of, of venues. Uh, Owen was simply to descend into the ring in superhero-like fashion. Why was he not on a volley line or some other backup line, which is normally used for anybody that's using a rigging? There would be a safeguard that someone would control. I'm not an expert on rigging. I guess you are. Well, it would appear that there were no precautionary measures taken. Why not? Uh, first of all, I, I resent your tone. Um, uh, I resent the sarcasm. Again, no, no, I resent your tone, lady, okay? Why? Why you know, this was a tragic accident. Here's the tragic accident. Don't try and put yourself in the spotlight here, okay? What this was an accident. Do you understand what I'm saying? What an accident. And everything that should have taken place in terms of rigging, to our, to our knowledge at this moment, did take place. It was rehearsed in the afternoon, and everything was fine. And that's all I know. Always a classy guy, that Vince. Yeah, I know a guy just died in my ring, but I don't like the way you asked me that question about how that guy died. He was certainly ahead of his time there, I'll give him that. And getting back to Brett, he actually found out about Owen's death while he was on a plane flying to Los Angeles. If you listen to the previous episode of this podcast, you'll remember how I played the clip of Kevin Nash challenging Brett to a match on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and they were scheduled to tape that segment the next day, but obviously that never ends up happening. And speaking of late-night talk show hosts, not everyone found Owen's death to be tragic. In fact, some thought they could actually mine some humor from it. The night after the incident, Craig Kilborn, the host of the Late Late Show at the time, made this joke in his monologue, quote, World Wrestling Federation wrestler Owen Hart, known as the Blue Blazer, died Sunday night. Blue Blazer's partner, White Turtleneck, was unharmed. Now, okay, 20-plus years later, I can admit that I got a bit of a chuckle out of that, but you make that joke the night after Owen Hart died? I mean, holy Christ, that's some Twitter-level bullshit right there. And on that note, I did find an article from May 27, 1999, a few days after Kilborn's comments, on Entertainment Weekly's website. Quote, New Late Late Show host Craig Kilborn is making enemies with the wrong crowd, wrestling fans. The smirky one ticked off the pumped-up bunch with a jokey on-air riff off the death of Owen Hart. The faithful were not amused. CBS has received its share of angry emails and phone calls. In response, a network spokesperson sounded a conciliatory note. Clearly, Craig wasn't trying to offend anybody here, the rep told the New York Daily News, and the producers apologize if anybody was offended by this particular joke. Obviously, they're sorry if anybody was hurt by it. End quote. And if you ask me, that CBS rep didn't really sound all that apologetic. Geez, wrestling fans, Craig Kilborn wasn't trying to offend anyone by mocking someone's death the night after it happened. I mean, come on, so friggin' sensitive, wah, wah, wah. That's another one of those scenarios where I feel like it's okay to be dismissive purely because it's wrestling-related. Like, yeah, a wrestler died. Okay, whatever, like anyone cares about that. And in regard to someone ever doing a stunt like this again... Thankfully, we learned our lesson, and a wrestler was never again subjected to this sort of unnecessary stunt work. And yes, of course, I'm joking again.
Fast forward to April of 2000, less than a year after this show, Vince Russo is now working in WCW, and he had been removed from his booking position three months prior, but the company has now reinstated him. And literally two weeks after Russo is reinstated, he books an angle where Sting repels down from the ceiling on the April 24th Nitro. And in fact, the show actually goes off the air with Vampiro hooking Sting back into his harness and dangling him over the aisle. Just brilliant stuff there. And by the way, if you're Vince Russo and you were not only there when Owen died, but you also came up with the idea to do the drop-in, how can you possibly ask someone to do that stunt again? I'm sure Sting was fine with it since he had done it a fair number of times previously, but still, why the fuck would you even ask? And what if, God forbid, it happened twice on his watch? Can you imagine, or on second thought, you know what, let's not. But alright, so with all that being covered, I think we can finally segue into the following night's episode of Monday Night Raw. I'm going to dive into it in just a moment, but before we do, to try and lighten things up a little bit here, I'm going to play a clip from when Bret Hart appeared on Steve Austin's podcast. Since Owen was notorious for playing practical jokes on people, Stone Cold asked Brett what his favorite Owen ribbing story was, so I'll play that for you here. And just in case you need some context, Reg Park is a bodybuilder and a friend of Stu Hart, so that provides a bit of backstory here. So enjoy this tale from Brett, and then we'll come back for Monday Night Raw. And uh, Owen decides that he's going to call my dad up from the lobby of the hotel to pretend he's Reg Park, and he... He calls up, and I answer the phone, because it was my room, and uh, he, just, he fooled me. I said, who is this? And he goes, it's Reg Park. Can we talk to your father or something like that? And he disguised, he did sound just like Reg Park. Yeah. I handed the phone to my dad. I go, it's Reg Park. Then my dad gets on, it's like, he's, how the hell are you, Reg? And Reg, how you? And they're laughing, and Owen's kind of playing along with it, and they're having a couple of good chat, chatting away just like the real Reg would. And, and then all of a sudden, Owen just, turns on my dad and like, but uh, Stu, you never had the guts to, you never had the balls to try me or something. <laughs> that was what it was. You never had the balls to try me. And he kept saying it to Stu and calling Stu, calling Stu out on the phone and uh, calling him uh, that he never, that he, he wanted, to, wanted, to, wanted Stu to fight him in the lobby of the hotel. <laughs> I just remember seeing my dad's face while he was holding the phone. First it was like, how the hell are you, Reg, and all that. And the middle later, Reg, if you wanted to try me, why didn't you try me? <laughs> and I remember he got so worked up. I remember he, he Owen kept taking it further and further and further <laughs> until it got hysterical and he couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> and my dad kept getting more and more wound up until I was actually like, I think I might have to step in and take the phone from him. <laughs> and all of a sudden, my dad, I remember he slammed the phone down on the bed, sat on the bed in his nightshirt. I remember he was just shaking his head, and he looked at me, and he goes, that lousy Owen, he got me. Because <laughs> Owen finally just said, it's me, Owen, I'm pulling your leg. <laughs> and it was, you know, it really was the funniest, I think, that he ever did. He got my dad big time. And we're back. And so it's on to Monday Night Raw, an episode of the show which is affectionately referred to as Raw is Owen for reasons which will soon become clear. So it is Monday, May 24th, 1999, and we are live from the Kiel Center in St. Louis, Missouri, now known as Enterprise Center in the present day. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include a whopping 19 episodes of Raw, 
six episodes of SmackDown, and a fair number of pay-per-views, including the 2012 Royal Rumble, Survivor Series 2014, which saw the WWE debut of Sting, perhaps fittingly Bad Blood 1997, since, as you may recall, that show took place on the same night that Owen's Hart Foundation stablemate Brian Pillman died at the untimely age of 35, and perhaps also fittingly, the aforementioned Survivor Series 1998, where Owen did his first drop-in from the ceiling. Pretty strange coincidence there. So in case you're wondering, I'll be doing the same thing here that I did for Over the Edge, watching an original feed, but also comparing it with the WWE Network's version of the show to see if anything gets edited out. And at the top of the show, we do actually get that customary Attitude Era opening that ends with them showing the Scratch logo, but from there, we immediately go right into the arena. And at this point, I was expecting to skip my usual segment where I point out the tasteless signs in the crowd, because I assumed... Well, certainly all the signs will be Owen-related, and people will allow good taste to prevail, right? Yeah, uh, not exactly. So here's a quick list of some of the signs in the crowd during Raw is Owen. Brother Love 316. Hi, Lisa the Lesbian. Let them puppies out the pound. But also a competing sign which says, To hell with your puppies. Show us your kitty. And then two other signs which may also be related I gotta poop, and in a completely different section of the arena, Jeff has to poop. So yes, 24 hours after the most horrible tragedy ever to occur in wrestling, there were still quite a few fans who just had to drop some signs about puppies and pooping. I'm just going to go ahead and refrain from comment on that one. But then we start the show, and much like they did when Brian Pillman died a year and a half earlier, we open with almost all of the wrestlers standing on the stage, and I say almost all of them, because your new WWF champion, The Undertaker, is not there, which I think is the right call since his whole character is literally synonymous with death. I couldn't get a definitive explanation, but I read several accounts that said he was actually visiting Bret Hart in Canada, so he was not even in attendance tonight. His on-screen brother Kane is also absent from this show, which I'm assuming was likely an attempt at keeping kayfabe because, you know, God forbid. Also, many of the wrestlers are wearing black armbands that say Owen or OH on them in tribute. I had actually alluded to this on the previous episode of this podcast because, on last week's episode of Raw, Al Snow was actually wearing a black armband that said Pierre on it, and he was eulogizing his dead friend. So, talk about horrendously creepy timing. But anyway, at the bottom of the ramp, Vince McMahon, Linda McMahon, and Stephanie McMahon are standing front and center. Notably, Shane is not alongside them, which I'm guessing may also be an attempt to at least keep some sort of kayfabe, since Vince and Shane have been at each other's throats on television for months now. Is it necessary to separate them here? Probably not, but whatever. So Howard Finkel is in the ring, and he asks the fans to rise as they toll the bell ten times in memory of Owen. Again, very similar to what they did for Pillman. And I will say that it strikes me as a bit callous that they zoom in on the faces of the people who are taking it the hardest, most notably Jeff Jarrett and poor Mark Henry who just has tears streaming down his face. But just to lighten things up for a brief moment, we also get a close-up shot of the aforementioned Al Snow who has taken the time to write Owen backwards on his forehead because, hey, you gotta get your shit in even when somebody dies. Also, Goldust is wearing his black Owen armband around his neck because, you know, he's bizarre. Can we maybe just give it a rest for a night? No? Okay. 
So anyway, once they toll the bell, the fans start clapping and cheering and chanting Owen, and Howard Finkel then directs us to the Titantron, where they show a video tribute to Owen. Last night, a tragic accident took the life of Owen Hart. He was 34. There are no words that can express the profound sorrow felt today by so many of us who knew and loved this very special human being. Fans throughout the world shared a small portion of Owen's life through his various ring personas. But to know Owen Hart, the human being, was pure joy. Owen loved this business and loved to entertain both in it and out of the ring. He was a consummate performer and a legendary prankster. In the extended family of professional wrestlers, respect does not come easily and is not taken lightly. Owen Hart had that respect. He was more than just one of the boys. Owen Hart was a friend and a brother to all. Our locker room and our lives will never ever be the same again. A loving son, brother, uncle, husband, and father. Owen is survived by his wife Martha, his son Oge, and daughter Athena. Our prayers go out to them and the entire Hart family with heavy hearts and the deepest of sympathies for his family. We say goodbye. If the legacy of a man's life is measured by the lives he's touched and how much he is loved, then a big piece of Owen Hart will live on in all of us. And so from there, the wrestlers then begin walking to the backstage area, and we then queue up the first of what ends up being many video testimonials on this night. Essentially, the wrestlers and backstage personnel were given the option of going on camera and sharing some thoughts on Owen, and as you'll see throughout this show, quite a few of them wanted to do so. And the first one is from Mick Foley, who, as you can tell from his voice, is still taking it pretty hard. Owen was um, my son Dewey's favorite wrestler. My son, the first few years of his life, had very, he had long hair because of my wife liked it that way. One day I was on the road and I called home and he was all excited and he said, guess what, Dad? He said, I look like Owen Hart now. Because Owen had just uh, gotten a crew cut and my son was so proud to look like Owen Hart. And um, he and my daughter, Noelle, would break into little chants of nugget, nugget, just for no reason in the car because in their little minds they didn't know that that was a, uh, you know, a, a, uh, a negative chant to Owen. They, they thought they were honoring Owen. And uh, I, I was proud that my son wanted to look like Owen. And if he could grow up to be a, a man like Owen Hart, I would be even prouder. Owen was, was the nicest, funniest person, I think, that, that I've ever met. And he loved his family. And I think that they should know that he talked about them warmly and with love and affection. And I, th I think there's probably a special place in heaven for Owen Hart. And uh, I, like all the other guys, will miss him. And, and we loved him. Obviously, that's pretty tough to hear. So once again, I'm going to quickly try to lighten the mood by referring to a passage from Mick Foley's autobiography, Have a Nice Day. For a quick backstory, the WWF was running a house show in San Jose, and the wrestlers knew that Dave Meltzer, who lived in the area, would be in attendance. 
So Foley and Owen essentially came up with the idea to have a match so bad that Meltzer would rate it negative stars. But more than that, because Stone Cold Steve Austin was the guest referee for the match, they also had the objective of making Austin break character and burst out into laughter. And to do that, Mick Foley, as Dude Love, brought a dumpster down to ringside for the match, and it contained a special surprise. So with that in mind, I present to you this passage from Have a Nice Day. Quote, After a few minutes of action so lame it would be hard for the written word to do justice to it, I dug deep into the inner confines of the dumpster for my secret weapon. In my hands was a bag of popcorn that was somewhat larger than a basketball. In fact, it was a hefty cinch sack filled to the brim with the dangerous snack. Up went the bag, and down it came with so much force. The impact buckled Owen's knees, but he gamely continued until the blows wore him down and he collapsed in a pile of the salty snack food. I should have stayed on him, but I couldn't resist the urge to showboat, so I stuffed a handful of the corn into my mouth and turned to give the San Jose faithful a glimpse of the dude's knock-kneed love dance. When I returned, Owen was ready, and he caught me with a boot and a series of weak chops and kicks to my buttocks area that sent me down in the middle of the corn, which by now was strewn about the ring. As he put the boots to me, I lay on my stomach and simultaneously waved my arms overhead and kicked my feet from side to side. When I got up, there was a huge popcorn angel in the ring where I had lain. I looked at Austin. He was trying to cover his face, but I could see his stomach shaking and tears rolling down his face. You two are the shits, was all he could manage to say. That analysis from the Texas Rattlesnake was worth more than any number of stars the Wrestling Observer could have possibly given us. End quote. So there you go, another reason why both Owen and Mick Foley will forever be treasures in the wrestling world. So after that, we go to our first commercial break of the evening, but when we return, we get our next testimonial, this time from Bradshaw. And in vintage JBL fashion, even when he's paying tribute to someone, he has to make mention of the fact that Owen was mocked relentlessly by the other wrestlers for being cheap. So that's good. Although, in fairness, the rest of what he says is actually very nice, because he talks about how the reason Owen was cheap was because he wanted to retire early to spend time with his family, and even though they're young now, he hopes his kids grow up to appreciate what kind of man he was. So no, I won't shit-talk JBL any further from there, except to say that it's still funny to me that he got his ass kicked by Steve Blackman the day before. Sorry, I just, I just can't get over that. But we then go back into the arena for our first match of the evening, and the first people through the curtain, fittingly enough are Jeff Jarrett and the WWF Women's Champion, Deborah. And again, not to question these things too much, but did Jarrett need to wear his shirt that said, Don't piss me off tonight? I'd vote no, but of course, I'm sure Double J's head had to be somewhere else tonight, so far be it for me to criticize him there, I guess. And then, once he enters the ring, Jarrett grabs the microphone and says, quote, This one's for the record, Owen never was a nugget. Okay, then. And so, Jarrett's opponent tonight is, of all people, Test. And when Test is coming to the ring, they actually put a graphic on the screen saying that Owen Hart memorial tributes can be made to his favorite charity, the Alberta Children's Hospital in Calgary, and for the record, they actually do leave the address on the screen, even for the WWE Network rebroadcast. So maybe, even now, people will see this and continue to donate if they go back and watch the show. Here's hoping. So interestingly, when Test enters the ring, Jarrett actually jumps him right from the start, which I thought was strange because if ever there was a time for Double J to act like a babyface, if even for just one night only, tonight would probably be the night, wouldn't it? And also, in case you were wondering, yes, 
even on the Owen Hart Memorial Show, we did indeed get loud puppies chants from the crowd directed at Deborah. Because yes, someone may have died, but also boobs. 1999 sure was a fun time, huh? But thankfully, because this is the Owen Hart Memorial Show, good taste prevailed, and for once, we didn't get Deborah's usual spot where she unbuttons her blouse and exposes her bra to Jarrett's opponent. I'm joking, of course. As is the usual custom, Deborah shows her, uh, breast to Test, and Test responds by, for some reason, licking his thumb and rubbing his own nipple. Again, I repeat, this is the Owen Hart Memorial Show, dude. What the fuck is happening here? But thankfully, we get a rather fitting end to the match, so let's take a listen to that. Very close. Yeah, that was like a two-quarter there. Don't tell me it's puppy time. Oh, my gosh. I think, uh, Deborah. What is this? Deborah can distract a man pretty darn easily wow. with a couple of things there. And wait a minute, Jeff Jarrett. Ooh. A reverse uh, Russian leg sweep right into a face buster. It's like the figure four coming up here. The figure, no, it's, no. A, it's a sharpshooter. Oh, man. Owen Hart's finishing maneuver. The sharpshooter. And Jeff Jarrett got to be doing this for his former tag team partner. And Tess is tapping out at the hands of Jarrett and the sharpshooter. Yes, that's right. Jeff Jarrett wins the match by using Owen's signature move, the sharpshooter, which I actually did think was a really nice moment. It was actually also a nice tease as well, because Jarrett has used the figure four as a finisher in the past, and you can kind of set up the figure four in the same way as the sharpshooter. You grab the guy's legs while he's lying on his back. So I think initially, the fans thought Double J was going to put Test in the figure four, but when he turned it into the sharpshooter, you could kind of hear that realization from the crowd. And when he does that, as you heard in that clip, Jerry Lawler says, Oh, man. And at first listen, it kind of sounds almost like the king is disappointed. But going back and listening again, I think he was actually saying, Oh, man, as though he was getting overcome with emotion. Remember that Lawler and Jarrett have that Memphis connection, and Jeff's father, Jerry Jarrett, was long-term business partners with the king. So not to read too much into that, but it seems like Lawler was saying, Oh, man, you're going to make me cry on the air. Again, that's just my personal take, but that's kind of how it came across to me. I didn't think Jerry Lawler was disappointed by the sharpshooter. And so, yes, Tess taps out, giving the victory to Jeff Jarrett, and as soon as the match ends, Jarrett and Deborah share a big hug. Clearly, this is a very emotional night for them, and I'm kind of glad they went on first so they could just focus on other things for the rest of the night. But there you have it, a nice win for Owen's tag team partner, Jeff Jarrett, to kick off tonight's matches. And then we cut to another testimonial, and this one is from Mark Henry, who actually wrote a poem in honor of Owen. And you can't tell from listening to it here, but much like when they showed him at the top of the show, Mark once again has tears streaming down his cheeks. Remember that Mark Henry and Owen were in the Nation of Domination together for about six months, so I'm assuming they got to be pretty close at that time, because it's clear that Mark really loved Owen, so I'm going to go ahead and play his poem for you here. And just so you know, the WWF cuts off the beginning part of it on their broadcast. I'm not sure if that was an accident or if they just edited it down from a longer version. So this isn't a case of me screwing up the audio. We actually do miss the first part of the poem, unfortunately. But here you go. When you cry, it starts to come when someone dies. The pain you feel as your eyes swell and tears fill up in the wells. The burn starts to choke you up. Words come out slow and shaking. You close your eyes and wonder why that there's a burning when you cry. 
When Owen left, it felt like hands around my throat. I couldn't talk, I couldn't see. The burn overwhelmed me. My heart is heavy. This is why. You get the burn when you cry. It digs down deep. You cannot sleep. You toss and turn in your sheets. Awaken with sobs and wet pillowcases. You wander aimlessly, looking to the sky. You feel the burn when you cry. So we go to a commercial, and when we come back, we get another testimonial, this time from Darren Drozdov. And when Droz is eulogizing Owen, I couldn't help but be struck by a certain part of what he says. For him to go out, uh, you know, he, he loved the ring and loved being in the ring, and it's kind of, I don't know if it's ironic or what, but uh, I just I feel for his family and his wife, and I hope they can look back and, you know, just remember how great of a person he was. So what stood out to me there is the fact that Draws is saying that Owen died in the ring, but there's a bittersweet irony to that because it's where Owen loved to be. And I couldn't help but think of the fact that only about four months after this, Draws suffers his own tragedy in the ring. And obviously Draws doesn't die, he's still with us to this very day, but his life was completely changed by an incident in the ring, and much like Owen, Draws was also a universally beloved guy. Just a quick parallel there that I thought was, well, frankly, a bit depressing, so you know what, I'll just go ahead and move things along there. So we then go back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Tag Team Titles, Champions X-Pac and Kane versus Challengers Gangrel and Edge, who are accompanied by Christian. And earlier tonight I said that Kane is not on the show, I just want to revise that. He is on the show, clearly, for this match, but I meant that he's not there at the top of the ramp, and he doesn't do a testimonial on this show because they're probably trying to keep kayfabe, but yes, Kane actually is on this show, just to be clear. And the referee for this match, by the way, is Jimmy Corderas, who, as I mentioned earlier, got hit in the shoulder by Owen's foot when he fell from the ceiling last night. So frankly, I'm surprised they even had him go out there, but in the string of questionable decisions over the past 24 hours, I guess that one is comparatively pretty low on the list. But anyway, getting into the match, of particular note here is the fact that the commentators are really playing up the fact that the ladies in the crowd really seem to react every time Edge gets in the ring. In fact, Jim Ross says he noticed it quite a bit at the No Mercy pay-per-view in Manchester, England last week, so in direct contrast to last night's pay-per-view, it seems like quite a few women in the crowd want to be under the edge, as it were. Too soon? Okay, moving on. So the match was actually pretty quick, and the finish came when X-Pac hit Edge with a Bronco Buster, followed by Kane nailing Gangrel with a choke slam. Kane then picked up X-Pac and press-slammed his own partner on top of the fallen Gangrel, and that was enough for Jimmy Corderas to count the one, the two, and the three. Your winners and still WWF Tag Team Champions, X-Pac and Kane. Fun match, short and sweet, and I do have to note that even though X-Pac has been getting a bit of a mixed reaction lately, shall we say, the fans are very much into babyface Kane, which is really cool to see. 
Remember, Kane has only really been a full-fledged face for less than two months now, so this actually is a pretty fresh take on a character that had, up until now, pretty much just been a monster heel, so good stuff there. And from there, we then cut to another testimonial, this time with Triple H and China. China actually speaks first, and she gives a very nice sentiment when she says that Owen probably wouldn't be happy with them right now, because he was a guy who always wanted to make people laugh, but right now he's just making them cry. So I thought that was actually a pretty well-put statement there by the ninth wonder of the world. And then we get to Triple H. And the poor guy at first can barely speak because he's so distraught. And retroactively, when I saw this, I remember thinking to myself what fantastic performers Owen and Hunter must have been. Because when they had that long feud back in 1998, I remember thinking, man, these guys must really hate each other because they were so convincing. Plus, Hunter being Sean's pal, Owen being Brett's brother. I just figured there was real animosity there. But when you hear Triple H here, I think you can tell that clearly that was not the case behind the scenes. In a business where, uh... You often see the worst of everything. You see the worst of everybody's personalities. We're like a family. We're around everybody at their best. We're around each other at their worst. Owen was always one that was at his best. He was always up. It's never a piece of trash. Owen was always there for everybody. To make you laugh. To make you mad. He'd rib you in the ring and make you so bad you wanted to choke him. He's the only guy that had the balls enough ever to, on a live pay-per-view to at the Royal Rumble, schoolboy me and backslide me and not let me out and <laughs> laugh, make me laugh more than anybody in the ring ever. <sighs> he loved his family. Talked about him all the time. Um, he's one of the guys. He really felt was true about that. Lived for his kids and his wife. Um, Owen will always have a place here for me, with me. You always be my friend. I love you. <laughs> I'll never forget you. And then, after a commercial break, we get another testimonial, this time from, of all people, Dave Hebner. He recounts a lot of the same sentiments we've heard so far. Owen was the greatest guy, always looking to cheer people up, always signing autographs for kids. And amusingly, Dave says that when he used to be a referee, Owen would sometimes tie his shoelaces together when he went down to count a pinfall, which struck me as pretty hilarious. 
one thing Dave didn't say was that they bonded because his brother screwed Owen's brother, but I'm sure that was the underlying implication. And from there, we go back into the arena for our next match, the Hardy Boys, accompanied by Michael P.S. Hayes, versus Takamichi Noku and Funaki. And holy crap, I couldn't even remember the last time we saw Taka or Funaki on an episode of Monday Night Raw, so I had to go back and look it up, and the answer is October 26th, 1998, when they defeated the Oddities. So it's been seven months. Good lord. And by the way, when the Hardys make their entrance, don't you worry, folks, it may be a tribute show, but they do have sponsors tonight, which JR and the King rattle off here. So who is willing to sponsor a tribute show put on by the same company that didn't even stop the pay-per-view when the person they're paying tribute to died 24 hours earlier? Well, a couple companies were eager to get on board. Fram Oil Filters, Castrol GTX, and Chef Boyardee. And when it comes to that last one, Jerry Lawler informs us that we can actually watch the debut of The Rock's brand new Chef Boyardee commercial next Monday on WWF.com. And I'm 99% sure this is the one where they parody getting jiggy with it as getting chefy with it. And then The Rock finishes the commercial by saying, don't be a jabroni, eat that fucking macaroni or some such. I'm sure I'll probably end up playing it on the next episode, so stay tuned for that. But anyway, time for the Hardys versus Kai and Tai, which I'm not going to lie, I am pretty psyched about. I kind of wish they just let these guys go nuts for about 15 minutes on a pay-per-view, but alas, it never happens. I did do a bit of research, though, and it looks like we actually get a Jeff Hardy versus Taka match on Sunday Night Heat in June of 2001, so that's something I will definitely be watching after I wrap up this episode. So early on in the match, since Michael Hayes was at ringside, we actually got a Freebirds chant from some of the fans, which I'm sure must have made Vince McMahon quite happy backstage. Nothing perks Vince up like the fans chanting for a tag team that brought in huge box office and companies that weren't his. I'm guessing that may be part of the reason why Michael Hayes' tenure as the Hardys manager doesn't last very long, but just a thought, just a thought. As for the match itself, we quickly got our first reminder that 1999 Jeff Hardy was absolutely insane and would do anything to make his mark on the crowd as he drop kicks Taka down to the arena floor and then he launches himself over the top rope and hits a swanton bomb onto Taka right on the floor. I mean, Jesus Christ, Jeff Hardy, you magnificent bastard. Not to be outdone, though, later on in the match, with Matt and Jeff outside the ring, Taka got a running start, jumped to the top rope, and hit both Hardys with a cross-body block down to the floor. From there, Funaki then brought Matt Hardy into the ring, but that proved to be a mistake, because Matt quickly hit him with the not-yet-named twist of fate, he made the cover, and that was good enough to score the pinfall. Your winners of a very entertaining three-and-a-half-minute match, the Hardy Boys. And I have to say, at a time when the roster is pretty stacked and they're doing monstrous ratings, the Hardys clearly feel like they have to go out there and steal the show every time out because you only get so many segments on a given episode of Raw. And needless to say, I think that strategy ends up working out pretty well for them. Stay tuned. So we then cut to another testimonial, and this time we get one from Bruce Pritchard. And of course, he has some nice comments here, talking about how Owen was a legendary practical joker, all well and good. I will admit, though, it's hard for me to talk about Bruce Pritchard because I personally just can't stand the guy. I listened to roughly the first 30 episodes of his podcast before I gave up because it quickly became clear, at least to me anyway, that he was just using it as a platform to get back in Vince McMahon's good graces by kissing his ass nonstop. The whole premise of the podcast initially was, I'll never get rehired, so I'm going to tell it like it is. 
and then he would just parrot the company lines, never once criticize Vince McMahon for even the most minor thing, and never once admit failure for anything he did. And that ties in here because, in fact, he did an episode of his podcast where he talked about Owen, but he refused to talk about his death, even though that is literally all anyone wanted to hear about since Bruce Pritchard was there that night. And gee, I wonder why he wouldn't talk about it. Maybe because there's no possible way to spin the WWE into a good light there? And if he criticized Vince for how he handled Owen's death, then he definitely wouldn't have been rehired, so he was a good little boy, and he kept his mouth shut. Bottom line, in my opinion, if Vince McMahon told Bruce Pritchard to cut Owen's rope himself, he would have done it. So kindly fuck off, Bruce Pritchard, and thanks for somehow making SmackDown even shittier since you've taken over. And after you get fired again, I look forward to hearing how it was everyone else's fault but your own that the show sucked. Dipshit. Oof, sorry, I feel like I just blacked out there for a second. Where was I? Okay, sorry, sorry. Continuing on, after commercial break, our next testimonial is from Dustin Runnels. Not gold dust, it actually says Dustin Runnels across the bottom of the screen, and he's not wearing any sort of makeup. And lots of people have mentioned so far how Owen was notorious for his practical jokes, but Dustin actually gives us an example of that here in his testimonial. A couple things I remember about Owen Hart uh, that stick out in my mind the most is, uh, you know, Owen was a tremendous family man. He loved his family. And yet, uh, when he was on the road, we had such a good time. You know, he was a prankster. And, and a funny story to tell you is that... Uh, Every time we would come to Kansas City, Missouri, Harley Race would uh, invite all the guys over for some chili and barbecue and stuff like that. And one day, Harley, we all came over and Harley built uh, or uh, cooked a big, giant pot of chili. And while Harley was outside checking on his barbecue, Owen slipped in there, got a whole bottle of hot sauce and dumped the whole thing in there. So you know what happened there. I mean, everybody was, his mouth was on fire. Harley got mad, so... Owen's over in the corner and he's laughing. We're all giggling, laughing. Harley brings out his stun gun, one of those little shocker deals, and goes after Owen. And you should see, you should have seen Owen just, I mean, he was going crazy. It was the funniest thing you ever seen. So kind of, the, you know, the pranks that he used to play, it backfired on him. It was a funny evening and we're going to miss him. I love you, Owen. I know you're in a better place. Now, if I didn't know any better, hearing that story, I'd think that Harley Race really overreacted by pulling out a goddamn stun gun, but I'm assuming he just did it to try and scare Owen, as opposed to actually zapping him. Remember, Owen Hart and Harley Race were actually really good friends. As I mentioned previously, Owen talked to Harley before the stunt at Over the Edge, and Harley jokingly told him to make sure the rope doesn't break, never of course thinking that it really would. And actually, when they took Owen to the hospital last night after the fall, Harley Race was one of the first people to arrive there, standing by in the waiting room, hoping to get word on Owen's condition. So yes, I'm assuming not a lot of people were aware of that, but Owen and Harley Race were indeed quite close. So we then go back into the arena for our next matchup, and here's a doozy for you. Union member Ken Shamrock versus Hardcore Holly. And for the record, this is not a hardcore match, but I kind of wish it was a shoot fight. I mean, Shamrock's a former UFC guy, and Hardcore Holly is just a surly bastard who loves to fight, so how come we never got this one during the Brawl for All? That's a major missed opportunity there, if you ask me. And surprisingly, this actually ends up being a pretty quick squash victory for Ken Shamrock, as he takes Holly down to the canvas with an armbar, and then he quickly transitions into the ankle lock, resulting in a tap-out victory in less than two minutes. Your winner of the match, Ken Shamrock. 
And frankly, I'm kind of shocked that they didn't have Holly get in much offense here. He hasn't exactly been getting a huge push lately, but he's been in the mix for the hardcore title, and he's certainly been on an upward trajectory since leaving the job squad at the beginning of the year. But tonight, a quick submission loss in no time flat. Curious booking, but then again, most people probably won't remember the results from this show anyway. And from there, we then go to another testimonial, this time from Farouk. He says that the wrestlers are like a family on the road, and Owen was a big part of that family. And Ron Simmons really appears to be at a loss for words here, not really knowing what else to say, and clearly I can't blame him for that. And after commercial break, we get another testimonial, emphasis on testimonial, because test is who's up next. And he actually shares a pretty funny story about Owen pranking him, so I'm going to go ahead and play that for you here. If I had to share a moment with Owen, uh, it'd have to be this story. It just happened a few months ago. Uh, we all came into Chicago, coming in to do a double shot, which is two shows in one day. Uh, we landed in Chicago, and it was really bad weather, a lot of snow, so they canceled the, the first show. And uh, the office told us to sit tight and relax and find out if we're going to be doing the show later on that night. So as I was sitting in my hotel room, the phone rang, and I picked it up. And the guy on the other end said he was uh, the, the head man running the stadium where we were supposed to do the show that night. And he was told that I was the man to talk to whether we are going to go ahead with the show. Well, I kept professing to this man that I'm not the guy to talk to. You're talking to the wrong guy. You need to talk to the office. He said that various guys were canceling and said that I was the last guy to talk to. What did I think? Uh... After a few times of telling him, I didn't think too much of it, and I told him that, again, I wasn't the man to talk to. He said, the last words he said were, well, I'll tell them Tess said to cancel the show. And I said, hey, buddy, don't bring my name into this, and he hung up the phone. Well, not till this morning I found out it was Owen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's pretty funny, but uh, it's, it's kind of a hard way to find that out. But all my memories of Owen are very good, and... Uh, I'll never forget him. Thanks for all the memories on, and uh, God bless you. Thanks. In case you couldn't tell, Owen loved those prank phone calls. And just quickly extrapolating what I can tell from these stories, what I like about Owen's pranks is that they never seem to be dickish. The general consensus seems to be, if you found out that you got pranked by Owen, you weren't angry about it. You kind of had that reaction like, ah, God damn it, he got me again. That's the difference between an Owen rib and, say, JBL relentlessly mocking Taz for being short. With Owen, you knew that he was always pranking you from a place of love, which is why no one has a bad word to say about the guy, even those guys he got the better of, which I think says a lot. But anyway, talk about a segue. Once they wrap up Tess's story where he visibly gets emotional at the end, we cut back into the arena where the very next thing we hear is, I'm an ass man. I mean, Jesus Christ, maybe plan that out a little bit better there, Kevin Dunn. Good Lord. So yes, our next match is indeed Billy Gunn versus Union member Mankind in a rematch from last week's No Mercy pay-per-view in Manchester, England, where Foley surprisingly did the clean job for Mr. Ass. And before the match begins, Billy Gunn grabs a mic and briefly reverts back to his old DX shtick, but in this case he says, If you're not down with Owen Hart, I got two words for you with the crowd, of course, obliging with a loud, suck it. I suppose that's certainly one way to pay tribute to the man. And early on in the match, Billy Gunn knocked Mankind down in one of the corners, and then, sure enough, 
he pulled his tights down, exposing his thong for the world to see on the Owen Hart Tribute Show. Am I wrong for wanting them to tone it down just a bit on this show? I mean, is it just me? Maybe it is, but I could do without Billy Gunn showing his ass and Deborah showing her puppies for just one night. My personal opinion. But eventually, Mr. Ass rolls out of the ring and grabs a chair. He then gets up on the ring apron, but unbeknownst to Billy, Mankind had pulled out Mr. Socko. Foley then put Socko in Billy's mouth while Mr. Ass was standing on the ring apron, and then referee Earl Hebner called for the bell? Initially, I thought the ruling was that Billy had submitted, but no, apparently Hebner had counted Billy out even though he was standing on the ring apron, so somehow your winner via countout is indeed Mankind. And after the match ended, Foley grabbed a microphone and said, quote, Owen Hart, this one's for you, and he then let out an Owen-esque woo while raising his arms into the air. And just a little while ago, I pulled out that passage from Mick Foley's first autobiography, Have a Nice Day, where I read that story about him and Owen having the match with the popcorn. But now, I'm going to pull out Mick Foley's second autobiography, Foley is Good, where he talks about this very night. Quote, The World Wrestling Federation dedicated their entire show to Owen Hart the next night. Anyone who didn't feel like wrestling didn't have to. I did and found it healing. There were no angles or storylines on the show. Every wrestler who wished to was able to give comments about Owen that were aired on the show. I felt that the show was honorable in its intentions, but the too many of the people interviewed didn't know the real Owen. Some of them talked about how Owen lived to perform for his fans. Others said that the World Wrestling Federation wrestlers were like his second family. I feel like I know Owen very well. Not as well as some, but well enough to know where his true passion lay. Owen liked to perform, and at times even loved it, but he certainly didn't live for it. Owen liked certain wrestlers, maybe even loved them on a certain level, but they were by no means his family. He had a family, a wife, a son, and daughter who he loved, and it was for them that Owen Hart truly lived. End quote. Some very interesting comments from Mick Foley there. I think we all look back on Raw is Owen very fondly, but it seems like Foley takes a bit of umbrage with some of the tributes we've heard tonight. He doesn't name names, but clearly he thought there was a bit of misrepresentation in at least one of these testimonials, which is very interesting if you ask me. And for the record, in Martha Hart's book, she echoes some similar sentiments to what Foley wrote there. According to her, Owen was planning on playing out his final contract with the WWF, saving as much money as possible, hence Bradshaw's comments earlier about him being cheap, and retiring to spend time with his family. So, a bit of food for thought there. But one guy who was, by all accounts, actually a very good friend of Owen was Jeff Jarrett, and his testimonial is up next. And as you might expect, the poor guy can barely keep it together, but here's what Jeff Jarrett has to say. In this business, I guess you got a lot of acquaintances, but very few friends. <laughs> And Owen, he was one of those friends. And, and there's a lot of funny stories, his personality, the things he used to do. And I've told my wife a bunch of times over the last couple of months that I've been with Owen on the road. I've seen Owen more than I see her, my little girl. And he said the same thing. 
And now that he's not here, it's it's you look at it almost selfishly that I don't have my buddy, my friend with me anymore. I don't know. Owen's in a better place, laughing and cutting up. But when you really think about Owen's life, I think about integrity. Because in this business, it's cold, it's callous, it's selfish, it's self-serving, it's unrealistic, it's a fantasy world. But Owen was real. He was a man's man. His wife and kids. <laughs> Three of the luckiest people in the world. Because he loved them more than anything in the world. And that's why he did what he did to provide for them. And he did it with integrity. And integrity in this business is few and far between. That's not a good thing to know, but it's the truth. And outside all the laughs, because on the road, without the laughs, you know, the fans get to see Owen 10, 15 minutes a week. But when you see him 24 hours a day for 10 and 12 days at a time, he's one of the guys that made it fun, made coming to work entertaining off the camera, and that's just as important as on the camera. promise to you because you got two little kids and I've got a little one of my own <laughs> as they grow older the only thing that they might have to find out what their dad was like is wrestling films but I've made a promise to myself as the years go by I'm going to do my best to let their, to let Oge and Athena really know what a great man you, you were on. That's it. I can't. I don't know. Jeff Jarrett obviously profoundly impacted by Owen's death. Although, just on a bit of a side note, I couldn't help but notice that Jarrett and Triple H both began their tributes by saying in this business, and then pointing out how shitty wrestling can be. And yet, Jarrett goes on to found a wrestling company of his own, and Triple H will be running the WWE someday. Coincidence? Probably, but it just struck me as a bit ironic in retrospect. And after commercial break, we go to our next tribute, this time from Owen's fellow countryman, Edge. And I'll actually play Edge's tribute here as well, because he has a pretty amusing story about wrestling Owen in his final match the night before Over the Edge. Oh, art. Uh, where do I start? 
Uh, Owen was uh, the leader of a little merry band of Canadians we call the Canadian Mafia. And uh, to me, Owen um, was was a, a type of guru to me. He uh, helped me on the road when it came to uh, traveling or, or a match. But uh, the thing I remember most about Owen Hart is uh, his ability to make me and uh, anyone else laugh. And when I think of Owen, um, I smile. Today it's a little bit tough, um, but I, I think of some of the things Owen did. And I had the pleasure to uh, wrestle Owen in his last match in Chicago, along with Christian, against uh, him and Jeff Jarrett. And uh, I knew Owen was in a, a good mood that night because he came out with his blue and white boots and his uh, black and silver and red outfit. His hair was all messed up. He had a goofy look on his face, and he's wearing his Time for a Change t-shirt. And uh, he got on the corner, and he started hitting poses and uh, flexing. And uh, we got into the match, and um, I had him in an arm bar. He kipped up, and uh, he wound up, and he gave me a big judo chop with a hi-ya and chopped me down. And uh, we had a good time that night. Um, and that was Owen's last match. And it's nice to be able to, you know, look back on things like that. Um, you know, he, he just, he made us all laugh. And he's going to be sorely missed. Um, I grew up watching Owen. And I, I uh, got the opportunity to uh, wrestle on pay-per-views on TV and all across the world. Uh, Germany, Raw, you name it. I wrestled Owen. And I traveled with Owen. And... Uh, to his family, Godspeed. Um, we're going to miss you. And speaking of Canadians honoring Owen, by the way, I wasn't sure where to put this, so I'll just mention it here. The tributes to Owen don't necessarily end after this show, because back in 2014, when the WWE signed Kevin Steen, he changed his ring name to Kevin Owens, a direct tribute to Owen Hart. Not only that, but his son is actually named Owen as well, so I think it's pretty cool that one of the top guys in the WWE continues to honor him all these years later. And from there, we head back into the arena for our next match, D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry, who are accompanied by Ivory, versus corporate ministry members, the Acolytes. Hey, three former Nation of Domination members in this match. Somehow Bradshaw didn't get the invitation. Guess it must have gotten lost in the mail. And speaking of Bradshaw, when he gets tagged in here, Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler again make mention of the incident with Steve Blackman the day before. Mark Henry just snatched a Farouk out of midair, and now the young prodigy D'Lo Brown in now, and just got a jawbreaker from Farouk who tags in old Bradshaw. And we know Bradshaw fights you to drop the hat, King. You're not kidding. Anywhere you want to fight, he'll fight you. Including baggage claim. Airports, it doesn't matter. Right hand by D'Lo Brown. And Bradshaw took the right hand and then tried to kick the taste right out of D'Lo's mouth here. You know, I bet Owen Hart's already playing ribs on St. Peter. Or already <laughs> nailed his sandals to the floor or something. You, you know, we, we, we're, I guess it's a little inside talk between you and I, but we're talking about a little confrontation that Bradshaw had with uh, Steve Blackman at the Kansas City Airport. And, I, and, and as I think back on it, I was standing talking to Owen Hart uh, and Jack Lanza when these guys came to blows right there in baggage claim. And, and Owen just laughed. 
So, J.R. and Waller keep mentioning that Bradshaw loves to fight, but they keep conveniently leaving out the fact that he got his ass beaten so badly that he had to go apologize to Steve Blackman so that Blackman wouldn't kill him. Funny how that part gets left out when they tell the story. And then, they just can't help themselves, because Jerry Lawler says a lot of people are asking about the funeral information, so you can find all that out by going to WWF.com. I mean, really guys? Even mean Gene Okerlund thinks that one was a bit sleazy. Come on now. But anyway, as for the match itself, the finish came when Farouk held D'Lo's arms behind his back, so Bradshaw went for a big boot, but D'Lo ducked, causing Bradshaw to accidentally kick his own partner. From there, D'Lo rolled up Bradshaw, and even though JBL clearly kicked out at two, referee Teddy Long counted to three anyway. Not sure if that was Teddy's fuck-up or Bradshaw's, but regardless, your winners of the match are D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry. Poor JBL, now he's lost three fights in the span of the past two days. And from there, we go to our next testimonial, and this one is from Pat Patterson. He says that Owen was one of the best performers in the business, and he never once met anyone who disliked Owen in all the time that he knew him. Very nice sentiments there, again, from a fellow Canadian. And after a commercial break, I actually got a bit nervous. Why? Because they started doing one of those videos recapping what happened in the main event of Over the Edge, and it looked like the usual ones they do, where they end it with, Order the replay tomorrow night to see what happened, or some such. Thankfully, though, they do not hype the replay, because, as you might expect, there was no Tuesday replay. So thankfully, good taste prevailed in one respect there. And then we go to our next testimonial, this one from Hardcore Holly, who gets surprisingly emotional. He says that Owen was always able to make you laugh, which is probably no small feat, considering Bob Holly seems like the surliest bastard alive. He also shares a memory of how they were doing a show in Mobile, Alabama a few years ago, which is Holly's hometown, and Owen volunteered to put him over clean. Which is crazy, but true, by the way. On an episode of Raw in Mobile in May of 97, Owen was the reigning Intercontinental Champion and part of the newly reformed Hart Foundation, and he let... Bob friggin' Holly put him over clean when he really had no business doing so. So, pretty cool of Owen to do that. And we then go back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Intercontinental Championship, Champion The Godfather versus Challenger The Road Dog Jesse James. And before the match begins, just like he did last night, Road Dog once again ties Owen into his shtick because he says, quote, you know, sometimes I just don't understand this world. Big swing and a miss on that one, Road Dog. If you want to try to make a deep statement, maybe speak like a normal human being, just a thought. And then, when the Godfather comes out from backstage, he initially enters by himself, drawing big boos from the crowd, but then, of course, he points toward the curtain, and four hoes do indeed emerge from the locker room. And at first I was thinking... Ah, shit, we're going to get a bunch of scantily clad women on the Owen Hart tribute show, but actually, all four of them were dressed rather modestly in black dresses, so I guess that was somewhat of a nice touch. Although it did get me thinking, even after Owen died, they presumably still sent someone to a local St. Louis strip club to find some hoes to accompany the Godfather to the ring. That seems a bit wrong, but hey, the show must go on, I suppose. And on a related note, Godfather was not among the wrestlers wearing an OH armband, but if he did, would he have been tempted to turn it around so that it said HO instead? I feel like he would have. I feel like he would have, but I digress. 
Also, I forgot to mention this earlier, but the initial plan last night was indeed for the Blue Blazer to beat the Godfather and take his Intercontinental Championship. And retroactively, I really wish we had gotten to see Owen as the Blazer, acting as the WWF's beacon of morality while holding the IC title. I feel like Owen would have really had a lot of fun with that. But anyway, the bell rings for our Intercontinental title match, but the Godfather quickly requests a microphone, even though he literally just had one in his hand moments prior when he did his Pimpin' and Easy routine. But let's take a listen to what happens next. But I love him just the same. And always, oh, and heart. And I always will. You know what, Road oh, Dog? <laughs> hey, you know what, Road Dog? Instead of me and you just kicking the hell out of each other, especially today, why don't me, you, and these fine hoes over here, <laughs> man, we go downtown St. Louis and we light it up all night long. What do you say, me and you go burn one and tell some Owen stories? What? Oh my gosh, they're taking the house! The Godfather and the Road Dog said there's a better way to get get together. Can we all just get along here? CJR, you gotta be more like Road Doggy Dog. So, funny enough, this is actually one of the moments from this show that I actually do remember 20 years later, because at the time I remember thinking that it seemed kind of tasteless. But now, all these years later, I actually find it kind of charming that Godfather and Road Dog would sit around getting high off their asses, laughing at all the ribs that Owen pulled. I hope they actually did do that on this night, because they probably could have used a good laugh after all this. But yes, in terms of the match, I suppose it goes down as a... no contest? I mean, Road Dog essentially just gave up entirely on an Intercontinental title match, but I guess if ever there was a time to turn down a title opportunity, that would be it, so fair enough. And we then go to our next testimonial, which comes from Paul Bearer, and much like Mark Henry, Paul Bearer also reads a poem, but not one that he wrote himself. Rather, he quotes the fourth verse of the poem, For the Fallen, by Lawrence Binion, and yes, I had to look that up. I won't read it here for you, but feel free to Google it if you're curious, because it's a very nice sentiment. And after commercial break, we go to our next testimonial, this time from X-Pac, who says that not only was Owen one of the funniest guys he ever met, but, quote, one of the funniest guys ever to walk the face of the earth. And I will say, because we now know what a practical joker Owen was thanks to this show and billions of subsequent wrestler shoot interviews, if there's one positive we can try to pull out of this whole thing, it's that I think we now have a fuller appreciation of Owen's in-ring work. When you hear about how he was constantly pranking people in and out of the ring, and then you go back and see all those goofy little touches that Owen would put in his matches... I can only speak for myself, but they always kind of make me smile in retrospect. So there's one teeny tiny positive we can pull from this massive shit puddle. So then we head back into the arena for our next match, and Jesus Christ, here's one you're probably never going to see again. Triple H, accompanied by China, versus your reigning WWF hardcore champion, Al Snow. Triple H versus Al Snow, folks. That's how you know they booked the matches on this show to mean absolutely nothing in the long run, and rightfully so, by the way. Also, and this bears repeating, Al Snow has written Owen backwards on his own forehead. And not only that, but Head has a black Owen armband around her neck. And maybe it's just me, but for some reason, incorporating someone's death into your gimmick 
really strikes me as tasteless. Am I overreacting here? I mean, I have no problem with wrestlers talking out of character as themselves in these testimonials, but when Al Snow writes Owen backwards on his forehead, or Road Dog ties Owen's fall into his promo at Over the Edge, that shit really bothers me for some reason. And I know everyone mourns differently, but goddamn, that stuff kind of pisses me off even 20 years later, but I'll just move on. So this match, for the record, is not a hardcore match, and it is also not for the hardcore title, which is a real shame because I'm sure Triple H, who's about to get a rocket right up his ass, would love nothing more than to hold the hardcore title right about now. Definitely a career-long dream of his. And early on in the match, we get that spot Al does where he hooks both of Triple H's arms and then headbutts him a bunch of times, which results in Hunter doing a flare flop down to the canvas. And Jim Ross, recognizing a Ric Flair homage when he sees one, says, quote, Triple H looks like he just got off Space Mountain. Well played. And for the record, this match goes for about four minutes, which is actually longer than I expected. The finish came when Al Snow picked up Hunter, nailed him with a snowplow out of nowhere, and pinned him cleanly for the one, the two, and the three. Okay, that's a lie. Snow actually missed a moonsault, and Triple H followed it up with a pedigree, and that was enough to secure the pinfall, so your winner of the match is, of course, Triple H. And after the match ends, Hunter points directly into the hard camera, pounds his heart with his fist, and says what I think was, Owen, we love you, man. He then points at his heart and says, always here, repeating what he said in his testimonial earlier. And then it looks like Triple H actually starts to cry again, so he turns away from the camera and exits the ring, so clearly a very tough night for him. And we then cut to our next testimonial, this time from the aforementioned Road Dog Jesse James. And this one's actually pretty brief because Road Dog can't really keep it together, and in fact he even says, quote, It's a little soon to ask me about Owen. He starts getting choked up because he talks about how both he and Owen have two children, and he says he's praying for his family, so very nice sentiments there. And after commercial break, we go to our next tribute, this time from Gerald Briscoe. Of particular note, Briscoe says, quote, He had one thing in mind, to go out and make the people happy. And when he said that, I couldn't help but think of that excerpt from Mick Foley's book that I read a little while ago, where he said that some people provided tributes saying that Owen lived to perform for the fans, a statement that Foley believed to be incorrect. So looking back on that now, was that Mick Foley taking a shot at Gerald Briscoe here? I feel like it could have been, but that's just me attempting to read between the lines. So from there, we go back into the arena for our next match, Union member The Big Show versus Goldust, who is accompanied by the Blue Meanie. And speaking of the Blue Meanie, as soon as the bell rings, Meanie actually starts hitting Big Show with forearms to the chest, which he completely no-sells. And Jim Ross points out that this isn't a handicap match, but sure enough, referee Jimmy Corderas does absolutely nothing when both Goldust and Blue Meanie start working over Big Show together. Ultimately, though, it doesn't matter, because Big Show ends up nailing both Goldust and Meanie with choke slams. and for the record, Big Show is getting a huge pop here, which I thought was pretty surprising to see. He pins both men simultaneously, Corderas makes the count, and your winner in a quick squash match is indeed the Big Show. But now, here's where things get a bit interesting. This is the final match on Raw in the Attitude Era for Goldust. He actually wrestles one more match on the next taping of Shotgun Saturday Night, where he and the Blue Meanie lose to the Hardy Boys, and then he requests his release from the company since he's become dissatisfied with the Goldust character and his position on the card. So yes, this is the last we'll see of Goldust in the WWF on our podcast timeline. 
Of course, he does ultimately surface in WCW in November of 1999 with uh, an interesting character, to say the least, and he'll be with them until they close in 2001. And then, yes, he does eventually return to the WWF, making his comeback at the 2002 Royal Rumble, but more importantly, he's still wrestling today in AEW at age 50, and in case you doubt if he can still go, just check out his match with his brother Cody at Double or Nothing. Amazing stuff. What a career. But so, for the purposes of this podcast, farewell, Goldust. You were certainly one of the more unique characters, to say the least. And from there, we cut to another testimonial, this time from Deborah, who obviously worked pretty closely with Owen over the past few months. So let's listen to what she has to say. Okay, I'm going to probably cry all the way through this. But, um... I'd like to say a few words for Owen, because I want his kids to see this when they grow up. But the short time I've been here, I've spent a lot of time with Owen working with them and traveling and stuff. And, and I will have to admit, the world's definitely lost a really great person. And I just wish that all the people could have seen how funny he was. I mean, no matter if it was a bad day or good day, I was having it always be happy and cheery and, and make me laugh. And we'd do autograph sessions, and, and he'd always mark all over my hand or in the limo. He'd always make up these funny words and kid with me. And it's funny, you, you tend to take people for granted because you're always with them. And then I remember yesterday, I was so upset because I felt like my shorts were were too tight on me or too short. And he was like, oh, Deborah, well, maybe you should change. And I remember that was like the last thing I was saying to him right before he, he left to do his match. And, and, and then like this morning I looked at my sheet and we had all these autograph things to do together this week. And, you know, life is, is very, very precious. And, and you should really, you know, not take people for granted. And I would like to say that, that Owen, you've really touched my life and, and brightened my day, the time I've been here, and the, all the blue blazer things we work together in the autograph sessions. And I will definitely miss you. And, and I loved you as a friend. We had great times. And I still can't believe you're gone and you're not with us anymore. I keep thinking. I keep looking for you. And it's just going to be hard now to walk out with Jeff. And you're not with us at the house shows, making all those jokes and <laughs> and, and making Jeff and I laugh. I'm going to miss you a whole, whole lot. But I just want your family and your kids to know you were a great guy. And I felt honored that I could have worked with you all this time. I love you, Owen. And you will always be in my memories. And then, after a commercial break, we go to our next testimonial, this time from Shane McMahon, and his comments, well, they stick out to me for a particular reason. See if you can figure out why. Owen was always the prankster. I mean, you do a prank to Owen and you're getting one back, you know, tenfold. I remember Bret Hart and I, about ten years ago, we're all in Chicago, and Brett and I were out down at the bar, and Owen, the blazer at the time, when he first came in, 
went upstairs early because he wanted to go to sleep. And Brett and I were hang, hanging out, and we decided to go up and wake up the Blazers, Brett would say. So we went upstairs, and, you know, we peeked in because Brett and Owen were sharing a room, and then we tackled them. And next day, Brett's boots missing. <laughs> My stuff somehow winds up in the shower. But uh, the McMahon Hart family goes back so many years, and Owen, Owen would be truly missed. Godspeed. Yes, Shane, the McMahon-Hart relationship does go back so many years. And how does it stand at the time of Owen's death? Pretty good? No? Is that because you and your dad knowingly screwed your good buddy Brett a year and a half ago? And don't forget that little tidbit, by the way. Shane was also in on the screw job. So hearing him talk about Brett here, forgive me for being cynical, but I'm kind of like, eh, he clearly wasn't that good of a friend to you if you did that to him, now was he? But anyway, moving on. So we go back into the arena for our main event of the evening, and here we have another match you probably won't see again. The Rock versus Val Venus. Quite the pairing. And when Val comes to the ring, I initially got nervous because he does indeed grab the microphone and say, Hello, ladies. And all I was thinking was, Oh God, please don't do a dick joke. Please don't do a dick joke. Please don't do a dick joke. But thankfully, he says he'll have his moment in the sun soon enough, but tonight, everyone is here to celebrate Owen, and then he points to the sky. And actually, on a related note, Val Venus doesn't do a testimonial on this show, but he does have a pretty funny Owen story that he's relayed in some other interviews, so I'll quickly share that one here too. So basically, a bunch of wrestlers were down in the lobby of a hotel signing autographs, and one fan walks up to Val Venus and asks him to sign a whole large stack of 8x10 pictures. So Val, of course, says no, because he's not going to take the time to sign a bunch of autographs that are just going to end up on eBay anyway. Well, unbeknownst to Val, Owen was actually nearby and overheard the whole exchange. So Val goes back up to his room, and pretty soon he gets a phone call from that fan telling him he's going to kick his ass if he doesn't sign the pictures, and he'll be waiting for Val in the lobby. So the pissed-off Val Venus goes back down to the lobby to confront him, and no one's there except for Owen Hart and Jeff Jarrett hanging out by the bar. So Val asks if they saw a fan holding a bunch of pictures, and Owen, of course, says he just saw the guy go out the front door, so Val runs off after him. Pretty funny stuff, but just a quick side note there. And as for The Rock, he's still wearing his cast, so yes, we're still going with the broken arm gimmick here. I just kind of assumed they'd drop that after Over the Edge, but apparently not. And by the way, when Rock makes his entrance, Jim Ross tells us that Owen's widow, Martha Hart, is extending her sincere gratitude to all of Owen's friends and fans for all of their support. Needless to say, though, the lines of communication between Martha and the WWF will be closing very soon. So when The Rock comes to the ring, he also grabs a microphone, and let's take a listen to what he has to say. Finally, The Rock has come back! It's with great pride that the most electrifying man in sports entertainment can come here tonight and entertain you. Now, having said that, 
the rock knows that you want him to kick his Rudy Oh, and this is your night. And damn it, you know The Rock loved you like no other. So it's with great pleasure that The Rock, along with the millions and millions of The Rock's fans, dedicate the people's elbow to you tonight. One time, oh, Again, I repeat, it kind of bothers me when people tie their gimmick into Owen's death. This rock promo isn't as egregious as the Al Snow thing, but still, would it kill you to talk like a normal human being when you're paying tribute to the guy? Just a thought. And so, The Rock doesn't waste any time calling his shot because he nails Val Venus with a rock bottom, and then, yes, just as he proclaimed, he also hits him with the people's elbow, and Rock beats the big Valboski in just under a minute. Totally squash Val, but hey, it's not like people are going to really remember it anyway, so fair enough. So Rock and Val then head backstage, and at this point, Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler are actually given some time to speak about Owen, so let's take a listen to what they have to say. Ladies and gentlemen, all I can say about Owen Hart is I hope that I can be as good a man as him so that I can see him again someday. Jay, I learned a valuable lesson from, from Owen Hart just last night. I went up to the ring and I, I held Owen in my hands and his, his head and I knew right at that moment that if Owen could have one more thing, he would want one more day to be able to tell his wife and his kids how much he loved them. And I realized, don't ever leave home without telling the people you love what you think of them. No doubt about it. We love Owen Hart, and we love his family, and we'll always miss him. And we're proud, ladies and gentlemen, to be a small part of this night for him. And I've got to say, that moment right there where JR and the King get choked up talking about Owen really hit me, because just the night before, JR continued to do commentary, and he navigated all of us through what was just absolute insanity. And Jerry Lawler, of course, as he said there, actually went into the ring and tended to Owen, but they both continued on with the rest of the show as if it was just business as usual. They commentated on the matches, they put over the storylines, all that stuff. But at the end of Raw here, listening to them give their thoughts, it's pretty tough to hear. Even 20-plus years later, I still remember that comment from JR about hoping to be as good as Owen so he can see him again someday, and the unusually insightful Jerry Lawler saying that we should always tell our family members we love them before leaving home. I don't know, it still resonates with me because these two guys are always the picture of composure, and then hearing them get choked up talking about Owen, it's, it's pretty brutal. But that's not the end of the show because we do get one final moment here, so let's take a listen. On a night we'll never forget. 
Boston losing the WWF title. This is about Stone Cold making a final tribute to our late friend Owen Hart on behalf of all the WWF superstars and the Titan Sports family. So, yes, we close the show with Stone Cold Steve Austin coming to the ring, and let me just quickly address the elephant in the room here. Stone Cold was probably the one guy who was not a fan of Owen Hart, with perhaps good reason. Remember, Owen gave Austin that tombstone pile driver at SummerSlam 97 that temporarily paralyzed him and led to years of neck issues for Stone Cold. And in that Rolling Stone magazine interview with Stone Cold just a few months prior to this show, Austin mentioned how Owen only ever gave him one half-hearted apology for almost crippling him. And even Owen's brother Bret Hart has gone on record saying that he told Owen he had to apologize to Stone Cold, but I believe Bret's explanation was that Owen was just too ashamed. So yes, you could say that having Stone Cold do the final tribute here is a weird fit, but I'm fine with it in the sense that Austin is clearly the top guy in the business. It makes the most sense for him to do it. Plus, I shouldn't assume too much, but I've got to feel like all was forgiven on Austin's end when the poor guy died. And obviously, I don't know that for sure. But for the record, I do think it makes sense for Stone Cold to do the send-off here. So anyway, Austin grabs two beers and crashes them together, quickly chugging one of them. But then he sets both of them down on the canvas and goes to leave the ring as Jim Ross closes by saying, One last toast to our friend Owen Hart. We'll never forget you, Owen. And at that point, they put the graphic on the screen of Owen standing on the turnbuckle, holding the Canadian flag, and giving a thumbs up with the text, In Memory of Owen Hart, 1965-1999. to Stone Cold's music fades out, and then the picture slowly fades to black. The end. Let's go to the wrap-up. seems almost trivial to recap the ratings here, but just for the sake of posterity, Raw is Owen scored a massive 7.14 rating, which will end up being the third most watched episode of Raw ever. So yes, clearly there was a lot of interest among wrestling fans to see what the WWF would do one night after Owen's death. For their part though, Nitro actually did see a pretty sizable increase in viewers this week, bumping up from a 3.36 last week to a 3.77 this week, so... That's something, I guess. And in case you're wondering, yes, they actually did make mention of Owen on Nitro, starting the show with a black and white graphic on the screen that simply said, Owen Hart, 1965 to 1999, as the ring bell tolled three times in the background. 
And then Tony Schiavone actually did provide us with some comments to kick off the show. Wrestling is saddened and shocked at the recent tragic death of Owen Hart. And at this time, on behalf of all of us, all the wrestling fans, all the promoters, and the wrestlers, the World Championship Wrestling, our thoughts and prayers are with his brother Bret Hart and their family at this time. In addition to that, both Rowdy Roddy Piper and Chris Benoit wore black armbands in tribute to Owen. Piper, of course, was trained by Stu Hart and was a longtime friend of the Hart family, and Benoit was one of the final Hart Dungeon graduates to actually get hands-on training from Stu, so it was fitting that they paid tribute to him. And in terms of the in-ring competition, here's what you could have been watching on Nitro instead of the Owen Hart tribute show. Van Hammer defeated Chavo Guerrero. David Flair defeated El Dandy, and frankly, if El Dandy loses to David Flair, then I do indeed doubt El Dandy. An 11-man cruiserweight battle royal went to a no contest when, of all people, Hugh Morris entered the ring and tossed out every single cruiserweight. And gee, how did this company go out of business again? Chris Benoit defeated Buddy Lee Parker. Buff Bagwell defeated Rick Steiner by disqualification, so Steiner retained his world television title. Rey Mysterio then went to a no contest with the aforementioned Hugh Morris. And in your main event, Ric Flair... Diamond Dallas Page and Bam Bam Bigelow beat Roddy Piper, Chris Benoit, and Dean Malenko via disqualification. And on a bit of a lighter note, at this point in WCW, who do you think is most likely to go a bit rogue and get in trouble for making shoot comments live on the air? Scott Steiner? Sure, obvious candidate there. Maybe Kevin Nash or Roddy Piper? Well, on this night, the person who actually got in trouble was Dean Malenko, because during a backstage segment with Benoit and Arn Anderson, he said this. Flair is for Flair, and we found out of the hard way. You guys got it all wrong. No, everybody in this company is for themselves. It's, it's almost like you have to have a driver's license here. You're saying you're 45 years old to get a push to go to the top here. So apparently that comment led to Malenko and Eric Bischoff having a very heated argument backstage because, God forbid, we point out that all the top guys in the company are getting up there in age. Although, by the way, Dean Malenko at this point is 38 years old and he'll be 39 just two months after this show. So I guess that makes him a youngster by comparison then? Alrighty. And one final note about Nitro here. According to a later interview with Sting, can you guess what was planned for him on this show? You probably guessed it, having him rappel into the ring. But of course, after Owen's death, common sense prevailed, and that was not in the cards on this night. Instead, they had Lex Luger drive a monster truck into the arena. Clearly, he must have been inspired by Stone Cold one month prior. And that ensuing distraction allowed Sting to sneak in through the crowd to come to Buff Bagwell's rescue. Although, now I'm kind of wondering where they got a monster truck on such short notice, but that's a whole other issue. But anyway, on that note, let's go to the Raw synopsis. So, would I recommend that you check out Raw is Owen? I suppose I would. I don't know for sure, but I'd have to assume this is probably one of the most watched episodes of Raw on the WWE Network, for obvious reasons. This was really their first foray into doing one of these tribute shows, but sadly it wouldn't be the last, as they also did them for Eddie Guerrero and, uh, regrettably, 
Chris Benoit before they realized the truth about his whole situation. So yes, I think I would recommend checking it out. It can be very difficult to watch at certain points, but I think it's worth a look at least once, if only to get a feel for how beloved Owen Hart was by pretty much every single one of his colleagues. We as the viewers only really saw the in-ring portions of Owen's career, but it's certainly nice to know that he was really, truly one of the nicest people to ever perform in the WWF slash WWE. And usually at this point in the podcast, I read some notes from the Wrestling Observer, but obviously most of what's covered in this issue delves into Owen's death. So instead, I'm just going to quickly wrap up here with a brief summation of what ends up happening in the coming years and all of the fallout. So as you might expect, roughly three weeks after this incident, Owen Hart's widow, Martha Hart, files a wrongful death lawsuit against the WWF, which ultimately ends up being settled in November of 2000, with the WWF paying Martha $18 million. When she receives that money, she actually ends up setting aside several million dollars to start the Owen Hart Foundation, pun intended I assume, a charity that provides college scholarships and low-income housing for children in need. And once a year, they actually do a fundraiser for the foundation, which has attracted some pretty huge names over the years. Steve Martin, Robin Williams, Bill Cosby. Well, I mean, he was a big deal before we all found out he was a scumbag. And just a few months ago, in October of 2019, the headliner was Jerry Seinfeld. That's right, Jerry fucking Seinfeld made the trip to the Southern Alberta Jubilee Auditorium. Whoever the PR person is for the Owen Hart Foundation, they deserve a raise because they're bringing in some pretty huge names. And of course, if you hear the name Martha Hart in the present day, it's likely for one very specific reason. The WWE wants to put Owen into their Hall of Fame, but Martha is very protective of Owen's image and she refuses to go along with the idea. And in fact, this issue came up at one of the actual Hall of Fame ceremonies quite recently, Mark Henry, who we heard read that poem earlier in the show, was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2018, and during his speech, he actually took the time to make a plea to Martha Hart. It was in Canada that I first met and had time with Owen Hart. I, I can say a lot about Owen Hart, but I, I don't have time to say all everything about Owen Hart. Owen brought so much joy to my life. I wish that um, he could be here with us. And I miss him dearly. And Martha, like camera, zoom, like zoom in here. I know it's not pretty, but just zoom. Uh, please. This is not from the fa from the company. This is not from other wrestlers. This is from his other brother. He needs to be here. Now, this is obviously a tricky issue. Is Owen Hart worthy of the Hall of Fame? In my opinion, 100% yes, and I understand where Mark Henry and many of the other wrestlers are coming from. However, and again, this is just my personal opinion, I do tend to fall on Martha's side here. 
because for the sake of argument, let's make it personal and hypothetically say that my wife was killed by the company she worked for in a completely preventable accident that had no business occurring in the first place. I feel like I would probably be pretty pissed off if they kept beating down my door too. Yeah, we killed your spouse, but why aren't you letting us honor him? It seems a bit disingenuous for the WWE to act like, why isn't Martha letting this happen? I mean, I would say her gripes are pretty legitimate, aren't they? Plus, let's face it, even if Owen never goes into the Hall of Fame, you can still watch every single match he's ever been in on the WWE Network. It's not like he's been completely erased from history. They still own the rights to hours and hours of Owen Hart-related content that we can watch anytime we want. And really, Martha's only request here is, please stop trying to exploit my husband's death, which you caused. I think that's a fair enough request. And for the record, in the present day, Martha is now at odds with Bret Hart over this very same issue. Somehow over the years, Bret was willing to bury the hatchet with Vince McMahon, even after the Montreal Screwjob, and even after Owen's death. Bret Hart is very much in favor of Owen going into the Hall of Fame, so his relationship with Martha has now become completely strained. Clearly, the reverberations of Owen's death continue to play out even 20-plus years later. And so, on that fun note, hopefully I've covered every possible area of this saga, and I think we can wrap this episode up. And legitimately, I really do want to hear your feedback. Please tweet me at rawattitudepod or email me at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com to let me know your thoughts if I did this whole thing justice. I tried to cover this as thoroughly as possible because I think Owen deserved that, and the result was 45 pages in Microsoft Word and more than 28,000 words, easily the most I've written for any episode so far. And with that being said, I'm going to leave you now with a clip of what is arguably Owen's shining moment in the WWF slash WWE, his match at WrestleMania 10 with his brother Brett, which is, in my opinion, one of the best matches ever to be put on a WrestleMania card. So take a listen to the finish of that match, and I will catch you next time when we go back to our standard timeline. And until then, I'll just close by saying, rest in peace, Owen Hart, one of the best of all time. What a matchup! Brad Hart using the assistance of the ropes to get back to his feet. There's a fist. Yes, but downstairs to the midsection. The Rocket now reversing in the hit man to the buckle. Here comes the Rocket. Ooh! Brad Hart going up. Look at this. They hurt him on the legs. And yes! A victory. No.
that Brett had his heart into the match. I just don't oh, don't make excuses. No. Don't make excuses. I'm not making excuses. He Mark. got beat. The better man won. We understand Todd Pettengill back there with the rocket. Let's go to Todd. Vince, thank you very much. I'm standing with Owen Hart, the rocket, who obviously surprised a lot of people tonight. Owen, how are you feeling? I feel great. I'm up on cloud nine. Bret Hart, brother, I beat you. I said it all along. Now I am the best there is, the best there was, and I am going to be the best there ever will be, brother. I beat you tonight, Madison Square Garden. I said it all along, Brett. And now, now maybe I'll start getting the recognition I deserve because I'm a better man than you, Hitman, and I'm going to beat you. Here at WrestleMania, I beat you, and this is a great moment for me, Brett.